Well, hello. Welcome to another meeting of the Corona Committee. It's a 149th meeting. It's called The Heart of the Matter. It refers to a quote from Dr. Foster's. The situation is that Dr. Foster's meets a black poodle, which turns into Mephisto in front of his eyes. And it uh, turns out that the inside of the poodle is not a poodle's or a dog's soul, but something else. And that is actually what we're looking at right now, what's behind everything. On Mephisto, we might also say that it comes to light at some stage that it says I'm part of every force that always wants the good and always creates the bad. And uh, we might really uh, consider that, um, but um, this never comes to pass anywhere with all the corrupt things that are coming down. And that we're actually doing the good thing. Now we're live on a Thursday instead of a Friday because there is an event at the Basis Partei tomorrow, and that is why we anticipated this. We also uh, are in um, our full team. Dr. Wolfgang Wodak is here um, personally, which is very um, gratifying, and Dr. David Jungblut, who is a legal expert, a former judge and a public prosecutor. I'd say we'll take a look at what's happening at um, the uh, inside the poodle, actually. Uh, Wolfgang, you prepared something for us. Yes, that's true. I have prepared something systemic, because I think it's very important to see the line between the dots to show what we are proud of. We entrust politics with many things, and many people are disappointed that politics doesn't do what it promised to do, what's in the basic law, and what should be happening according to the rules we live by, and many of these rules are not followed, and I'll take a deep dive into why these things happen. I have um, designed a colorful drawing of our society. It's a scheme of a society with all its subsistence, each of it having their own function. It's like in the body where we have the liver, the brain, the heart, and the immune system. And every system has its task to fulfill and in these organs, as in the state, that's what they are entrusted with. And uh, some of them make sure that we are in peace, that no violence is applied by others apart from that which is it's legally entitled to. Others make sure that we can make use money to exchange, that it stays what it says, that we can depend on using it. Others make sure that the decisions are knowledge-based and uh, some of them are curious that science and uh, want to find out everything and others make sure that everything that's relevant for decision uh, making is available for us and that's what we want to do that's the organism we live in and in this uh, societal uh, sharing of workload was around long before democracy came about and it was a hierarchical structure a feudal 
uh, structure of power and, uh, with the inheritance of the kings, which they still have, and they have their ministers and their civil servants. And that was designed top down. And the people were the object of the power and were exploited and so on. The people had to do what the rulers wanted to do. There was some progression when Frederick the Gate said, I'm the primary servant of my people. Probably he said this to postpone the revolution, which did come about. And after the revolutions in, in France and Germany, um, things were inverted. We had the Weimar Republic as a first attempt for a democracy, and uh, the people were overwhelmed by it. And um, so they returned the power to the great Führer, and things went totally wrong. And then we had the occupational forces who claimed to be democratic, and they said Germany has to become democratic as well. And that's what gave us the basic law, which rules out these things and there we read all power is um, sourced by the people and the people entrust others to give us the rules that we live by in accordance with the basic law and uh, for them as Democrats we can together design and decide um, with the parliamentarians and the government how the country is going to be run and they got a lot of decision power for us for example they can create and uh, use communication media this is for example money we communicate with money uh, exchanging things the um, monopoly of uh, violence. Nobody is allowed to do that if um, we uh, do not have um, that privilege. And of course, um, that's given to the police. Um, we have um, uh, and uh, the government has to make sure that we get the knowledge that we have and the freedom of uh, arts and science and the government also creates standards and rules that we use in order to interact also the resources that they use the use of the resources is decided by the parliaments they create budgets and they decide who gets what and what for and all the rules that we decide on uh, that we live together we empower these politicians to design these rules. That's the democratic principle as we have it. And of course, there is many, many different interests in politics, in democracy. Of course, people fight and they do so rightly in politics and in democracy. And so there has to be someone uh, to set the roles, how to um, set by these quarrels. That could be votes, that could be elections, that could be rules accepted by the society 
in general. I want to give you an example from the health system for this. We have the health insurances, for example, and they say it's a solidarity, solidarity body, they collect the fees also from people who never get sick. You st they still have to pay and you don't have they don't have any benefit but they're proud of living in a country where you don't have to be afraid of getting sick you can be happy if you don't but uh, everybody has to pay and if you earn a lot you have to pay a lot and if you don't earn a lot you pay less and um, this is um, an overview here um, where a survey found that only a few of the people who are insured consume most of the money. And that is, of course, a load. These people who use all the money, um, for example, the people who have severe traffic accidents, who need organ transplantations, and so on. So these people can't change it. It's fate, of course, if you have this, nobody does that voluntarily. And so the costs are seen as a load and these people are seen as a load and the insurances always try to get people who are uh, healthy and uh, ensure them to make money so we have a structural balance to compensate for this so the point is that 10 percent of the insured people cause 80 percent of the workload that's one view the other view is the economic view they say that 10 percent of the insured people give us 80 percent of the revenue where can we go? Where are the self-help groups? Where are these people who we can tell what we have so that they tell politics what they need? And uh, so they're very interesting for lobbyists, for example, for the lobby of the pharma industry. Um, if they organize in self-help groups, uh, the pharma industry sends uh, people in to give lectures. And then, of course, these people ask for the drugs that they lecturer talks about and that yields a benefit for the pharmaceutical industry so that's not a load but from the econo from the economics of health it is a benefit and the higher the emergency of people is the better the money making is if somebody is near to death they give all their money to carry on living they know this and this is why they're interested in cancer therapy for example because that's where they can make the money and if there's no emergency they create emergency they create fear so that we are ready to spend more money uh, and that's what we've seen in times of corona panics and the people who work there are they are the experts they are managers and management boards and this is a description of a CEO which you can download um, so it's a sample uh, CEO job description for a any job really so you have to care for growth according to targets you have to deliver um, the core um, financial goals, uh, liquidity, cash flow, profit, 
and the revenue, an increase in the market share by two to one to two percent, and that's that's kind of the thing that people have to deliver if they take on the job, and if they don't, they get fired. So they are under pressure quite clearly, and if you want to do this, if you do this, you do this because you want to make money for the country. That's okay, but you have to know that these are the interests that rule in the background, and we've heard about the sharing of workload in the world and the different interests have become so strong that they overlap into different areas of society so many areas in our society which should be independent of economics have been partly assimilated for example we have uh, a great growth in uh, private funding of science a professor it only becomes a professor if they can prove that they can get third-party money in um, that is kind of being untruthful and uh, if you get lots of money into the university you, you get a job if better if you can we have militaries that live of the fact that um, there's no peace so they always try to see where can there be a fight and then they are there and offer their support and companies for example who create conflict um, for example I've uh, experienced this in Africa that there are um, governments that are not friendly to the industry they want to um, have everything state ruled that's where the a riot start that's where money goes in weapons go in and uh, then uh, foreign military comes in Sierra Leone it was a good example and uh, the British government sent in uh, the company Sandline um, Tim Sheffer was the CEO and they wore the won the war for Great Britain and Great Britain had a great interest in that government to be in place because that was the big people to do business with so that's private military companies a massive growth market which undermines the monopoly of power of the state and we've got banks banks actually should be taking in money storing it and while they store it they could give it to someone who needs it and if you need it back you can get it back that's the function of a bank originally it's a money storage and uh, of course they fund themselves with that by interest that's okay but by now there's a big amount of big banks who are not interested in the people who need money they just speculate with money they push money around so it is financial economy that's a place to make money with money um, that leads to the bubbles appearing and the value being devastated because um, they can generate money by giving out loans and they don't really um, have to make sure that they get it back um, this is very uh, gone very much off the rails and um, the private interests have hollowed everything out and this has impaired trust in the funding in the financial economy and then there are private schools of course and uh, where the people are trained to go to the companies later on to the universities um, uh, newspapers aboard if you want to fund who uh, checks um, uh, a car magazines for example you just need to check 
check who pays the money and you see the best uh, result in the test will be with the manufacturer who paid most, most money and uh, that's obvious and if you read uh, consumer tests and uh, things like that on the internet often this is the case and the misuse of uh, power given to someone is called corruption so if the private benefit doesn't be need to be individual people it need a private benefit is a part of society with people wanting to um, evolve their capital they use this so a stock company taking lobby work and affecting politics that is a massive conflict and we all know that lobby has become very strong I have a picture on that in a minute and that leads to strong change and uh, we're talking about a lobby republic even uh, lobbyism in Brussels which is a massive approaches and by the in the health area for example the development of what we've seen over the past 30 40 years if we have a herd of white sheep they all do what they should do uh, they simply do what they are entrusted to do and there have always been a couple of black sheep who do their own things who are fraudulent uh, corruptive uh, take money to give privileges to someone and when it came out they were fired it was forbidden and uh, you couldn't get your own private money, but if the whole organization, the whole care home, the whole hospital is an institution that's only there to make money because it belongs to a stock uh, company, a public company, then the managers have the task to make money. If they don't make money, they close it because that's the reason for their existence in the first place. So all the sheep who work there have to help make the money. That's why they have the controller. Why don't you do that diagnostics and that? And they have this person too long in the bed. Um, and we've got the lump sum for the case and they're still there. We could put someone new in that bed. So they make sure that these things work and uh, health becomes secondary. They work for health but only if they can make money with it so that means we have a black herd of sheep and only a few white ones who think what do I do with the patient what why did I become a doctor or a nurse so they are the white sheep and there are some white sheep who get their whistle out and do some whistleblowing and say I'm out I'm don't do this anymore and they complain and usually they get fired and um, that's uh, we have no little protection against whistleblowers in Germany a whistleblower if there's people in a hospital joining up for example with the HR um, uh, or the equivalent of the works council and so on they may change things but individuals hardly change anything so I can only recommend to anybody if you are in an institution 
institution with the original purpose being perverted due to money-making join up and act against it. That's my advice. But in economics and in the health area, this is uh, in the health sector, this is a standard and the companies who work there don't have much interest um, in uh, and doing what they're supposed to do can be seen in this uh, graphic from Der Spiegel, the magazine, showing the amount of fees and penalties paid by companies. So this is uh, billions of uh, dollar. Bristol, 0.5. Pfizer, in two, uh, 2009, paid three billion. Glaxo, three million, and so on. You see this. The, um, Penalties are the red bars and the, the gray bars show the share of the turnover. And you see in Glaxo it was 9%, but they've still got 90% left over. It's still worth it. And uh, these managers who are hired to make money just calculate the risk and they do criminal actions in order to satisfy the shareholders. That's known. That's known for long. And they do one criminal act after the other. While they are punished, and uh, the courts tell them to open a compliance department, they do that, and then they adjust the price of the medicament, of the drug, and uh, to make sure that the profit stays up. So that's rational choices, what they do, and uh, they are quite rational, really. And you have to know this, and uh, if you have an important function of society, give that to a public-private partnership, for example, and allow them to take over the control um, because they hand in money, they invest, and you allow them to do to decide what's important and how to align the company. And so you have to make sure, you have to know that this is going to become a company that is there to make money in the first place, and that strongly impairs the public function and you don't have to wonder if the people who stop the money making in the company um, get kicked out. Yes, but you have to see here that these grey bars mean severely harm people or even deaths. It's 40 products that we get out of this. You're right, you're right. Well, if we apply this to the current situation and see the billions of dollars spent for these so-called vaccines, and um, if we know at the same time how cheap they are to make compared to traditional <laughs> um, vaccines, it's a massive business. And if the companies, by their corrupted work, manage to get in line with politics and um, hand over liability to politics in their contracts, that's even more profitable. So here, lobby has actually um, taken its stand on politics, and we have to find out who this was. Who was the lobby that uh, made us do these things? 
Well, we've left it to society, to be true. Uh, and uh, it's not the politicians who pay the money. No, actually, that's right. They gave it back. Um, uh, they're getting it back by the prices, the taxes, and so on. They're getting it back from us, the taxpayers, of course. And the lobbies, lobbies are something that developed. Um, we knew that 50 years ago. Uh, usually, uh, originally, the lobby was the entrance area that we had in front of the parliament. That's where they could go in, and they still can. And they wait there for the parliamentarians to come out. And they were the representatives of the interest groups. And of course, that's legal. And that's OK. If you have a certain interest, you can talk to politicians. In the Bonn, uh, Republican Bonn, when the German government still was in Bonn, um, that was OK. It was different. It's changed. Um, it is to find objectives of politics. People say, we have to do something here and there, or with the media. Um, they uh, affect the media and uh, take their stand with the parties, for example. So um, that's what they what they have. Um, and the party programs are not all uh, congruent. Usually, they're not. And uh, um, we have to uh, start with WHO. And they have a lot to do with setting the standards. That's what WHO does. Um, they define uh, what a pandemic is, what not a pandemic is, and so on. And uh, they can become active for the investors there. <clears throat> and they decide where the money is spent first, what's important, what's not. Okay, and the lobby structures have changed. Um, this is the parliamentarian from Bonn. The top picture was the small parliament that we had with um, the associations lobby. The uh, doctors came in, the farmers came in, the association, the industrial associations, and so on. They were all there. That was a lobby of the associations. They all knew each other, and they did the lobby work. And with the relocation to Berlin, that has completely changed. Now, it's not so much the association, but it's the industry. It's a PR agencies, big international agencies that operate in Brussels, in Berlin, and New York, Washington, and Paris, everywhere at the same time, because they um, are globalized global companies, and if they have a lot of money, and there are people who seem to have the billions, who can hire these people and buy the strategies. They help them to do the strategies on how to implement their ideas in politics and make politics do what they want. And this lobby industry offers great things. For example, some come from secret services, and they can find out what's going on in the population, whether there's any grassroots initiatives evolving some movements coming from the bottom. And you can buy, for example, if there is no grassroots movement and you want one, you can order it. You can order a grassroots movement to be started. And that is then called astroturfing. 
That's an offer that you can get in the internet, uh, and um, they pretend that there are interests, but usually they just simply go to join the self-help groups and the health area, health sector, for example. They do massive business with rare um, diseases, so people who have something as a disease are um, contacted and they help them, they're nice with them, they take care, they um, represent their interests and so the patients um, representatives are brought to Brussels, uh, where the EMA is now, those uh, representatives of patients. That's where you want to get these people in who you've helped before, and you can use them as lobbyists. And if you don't do this, we are going to die. You have to help us, otherwise you're very evil. You have to make this medicament available, even if it's not worth it, and it's too expensive. You want to have us die. That's the toner that you here and um, whether it's true or not it's very difficult um, and whether it helps the people is hard to know. In many cases they found out that this uh, important drug only helps the pharma industry and not the patients. So these are the things that developed strongly and uh, the same strategy um, uh, went on with the mRNR injections. If you just look at the PR for BioNTech and Pfizer, um, that goes up to Ms. von der Leyen. And the Chancellor said that um, the pandemic can only be stopped with the vaccination, although there was no vaccines at the time available. So we didn't know how it worked. Nobody knew that it would be available, but seemed to have someone whisper to her and then she repeated it. And uh, one more instance was, it's all these standards that go along and uh, WHO is an important point in this. And an important one is uh, WHO, of course, ILO, uh, that's responsible for labor, or FAO, uh, which is an agricultural organization. They define what is a uh, food, what's an additive. They define that, actually. And then there are, of course, um, pharmaceutical interests that want things defined as pharmaceuticals as medication rather than as food. So everybody have, uh, has their own interests and um, WHO and its sub-organizations are of course the uh, target uh, for those interests and I won't uh, speak about all the others, some of at a European level, others at uh, national level in Germany. All of them are the targets for lobby groups. Let me just focus on WHO as an example here. You can see uh, this pie chart here, and this pie chart has a very large green area. In this green area are voluntary contributions. Um, those are um, the mainstay of WHO's uh, budget. And, um, a large uh, portion of that comes from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, they're also involved in Gavi and, and others, so they uh, influence uh, from different angles under different names with their money uh, influencing WHO. But it's also um, 
laundered money, basically. Um, so um, the national uh, contributions, for instance, are based on uh, economic interests, uh, where business interests tell the national governments, well, if you want the national um, industry to survive, then you have to get WHO to uh, promote vaccinations or whatever. And those are monies that are given by national governments to their um, for, uh, for their own economy. Uh, so if WHO focuses on certain diseases that are beneficial to a national um, interest, then we will give you money. And you can see that among the top 20 contributors uh, to WHO, uh, we can see that Germany pays twice as much as other countries, twice as much as the US or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And that is very recent. In the past, Germany uh, never paid that much. There was someone in the middle ground. So Germany has been um, at the very forefront since the beginning of uh, COVID and strengthens WHO, the German government, strengthens WHO with the incredible amounts of money that they contribute. Well, and how come there's such huge uh, amounts of money? Well, it was decided by the German government, and they just went along. I didn't um, um, participate in this discussion, of course, uh, but they probably said we have to support WHO in order to combat uh, COVID. The same story as always. So uh, does that would mean that the government is a bit idiotic, um, unthinking in Germany, which wouldn't uh, surprise me, but it would also, one might also assume that it's due to the fact that there are certain big pharmaceutical companies in Germany headquartered here. But, but there must be a motivation there. Well, the BioNTech effect, I don't know, possible. No, no. Well, it's a small part, uh, probably. It's not the um, uh, full explanation, probably, but there must be an, a reason for it. Well, the investors uh, to Pfizer, that involves the big uh, investor agencies, 10% by BlackRock, and um, it's the big investors, and they call the shots at the end of the day. They say what needs to be done. They can have these things manufactured in Germany, but they can also have them manufactured somewhere else. Where it is made at the end of the day, and who is offered this business idea, as, as it were, whether it's the small uh, BioNTech in uh, Mainz in Germany or whether it's somewhere in the US, that's an investor's decision, I believe. And they just singled out Germany because uh, Germany was obviously so well prepared that they knew um, that uh, politicians would participate. They um, planted their puppets so that they knew ahead of time that they'd go along. Just a minute, that's really Well, but this strange. is really exorbitant if we compare it to the US, and um, I'm sure that uh, they also compare the countries. So what do uh, individual countries pay? Then uh, it must be obvious that this is completely disproportionate. Well, it would be important to uh, look at this, also important for the opposition in Parliament, if there is one. How come they took anybody took this budgetary decision 
There's a lot of money we're talking about here that's being spent here. And WHO, so the, the public interest that we can see here, there's, there's really very little, very small sectors where public health is promoted. All the others are targeted interests. WHO is abused as a marketing tool for it, the pharmaceutical industry and is institutionally corrupted to about 90%. And even the money is paid from Germany, you can expect this to be um, based on certain business interests, not health interests. Well, the uh, definition power of WHO is huge. They defined was um, swine flu is what a pandemic is. They just changed the uh, definition. You don't have to be seriously ill. You don't. It doesn't have to be life-threatening. It just has to be a new pathogen. So any new flu, basically. Um, can be declared a pandemic because every flu is a different variant, they could um, call a, any new flu a pandemic. They even tried in 2020 to redefine herd immunity and they said, well, you can only achieve that via vaccination, only via vaccination, which is complete baloney. It's got nothing to do uh, with herd immunity. Herd immunity was around long before there were any vaccinations. They define standard values for the need to treatment, and the ICDs are defined. So the question of which diseases are identified in the first place, which diseases are there, it's only those that have an ICD number. That's the um, international classification. That is the basis for um, physicians to charge. Uh, for instance, in the German health system, if you uh, charge um, for any treatment, you have to indicate the ICD number. The monkeypox, they say that this is an international uh, situation of international concern. So, somewhere in uh, German, uh, somewhere in the world, uh, people have uh, pimples in the uh, wrong place, and then um, they define it as uh, monkeypox. They probably prepared this, and then they can always say. These are monkeypox, and they say it's really dangerous, even though nobody ever notices anything about it. And things that were always around, they can simply define it, and they can um, focus on it, or Marburg virus, there are always outbreaks in Africa again, and through hygienic measures they can be contained, and they make a big brouhaha about it, and they say, Bill Gates says, oh, something very dangerous will um, come of it, and then the stock prices of the pharmaceuticals go up again. So the WHO was abused to put fear into people. I have an example here, um, an example from a book published by Mr. Welch, and he gave an overview here what the um, threshold values for cholesterol um, are. It has been lowered from 140 to 126, uh, which means that you have 14% uh, more patients. 
Or, uh, sorry, 86% is more patients for cholesterol, and reduced from 240 to 200. Um, and that means more patients, of course. So it, it's worthwhile sending in a few experts um, to WHO and advise the WHO to reduce the cholesterol threshold level, and then you make new patients. The same goes for. Uh, um, blood sugar, 14% um, more diabetics that need to be uh, treated, um, blood pressure as well with osteoporosis, the same. Uh, the um, density, bone density was uh, checked and oh, suddenly you had twice the number of people with uh, brittle bones, and so there's this lobby that ensured that these threshold values were appropriately reduced. And rarely do they check what did we achieve by adjusting these values. Uh, with the uh, cholesterol, uh, we know those who got the um, um, blood pressure reducers don't um, um, benefit a lot, um, but many have side effects. This is um, the swine flu when it was um, turned into a pandemic. These figures are by Mr. Ferguson. Um, these few cases you can see on the 30th of April, just before um, the uh, pandemic was declared, was 140 cases worldwide that had H1N1, most of them in Mexico. So they sent a, a company from hospital to hospital uh, looking for people with respiratory diseases, and uh, they collected this uh, and tested them and then collected um, the cases, and that was the mildest flu uh, we had in decades, and um, that was ongoing in Australia already, because that's uh, the European summer, of course, is Australia's winter, and so they could see there's nothing happening, and then WHO allowed Mr. Ferguson to calculate so uh, Mr. Ferguson multiplied the few cases with the flights that go from Mexico to the world, that's the table in the background, and he calculated how this disease, this uh, horrible disease, will spread across the globe, killing millions. But it never happened. But there was the um, basis for WHO to call stage six of pandemic uh, warning, and this had been defined um, such that the contracts with the vaccine manufacturers um, kicked in, and the governments had to take those vaccines. So, I mean, at stage six, uh, these vaccines had to be produced, the countries had to buy them, and you can see what this meant for Germany. These were actual vaccines with real vaccine, uh, vac uh, vaccinations with real vaccines. Um, there was a lot of um, uh, impact enhancers with very little um, active sub substance, they made a lot of uh, vaccines, and this um, uh, uh, efficacy enhancer is very negative. Special injections, that's what I went there. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know any epidemiological evaluations here concerning the uh, adverse effects, but uh, it shows here how many uh, doses were uh, ordered. Um, 34 million were uh, ordered by the lender, 50 million had been uh, ordered by the government, and only 14% were, uh, uh, fortunately, were uh, luckily actually injected and the rest was disposed of so the physicians actually protected their um, patients from this uh, campaign um, so um, it went well even though it was very expensive so they did earn their money and you can see the german contract here with phase six when uh, will these contracts uh, kick in that's the french uh, version it was leaked as well the french um, contract and uh, this is the article that shows when or says when this has to um, um, be bought uh, and this is the agreement with Sanofi on the 9th of March the French president Sarkozy of the time uh, traveled to Mexico and he delivered 100 million euro uh, to make a um, vaccine manufacturing plant how did Sanofi know in March uh, that 150 cases were in April? Well, Ms. Merkel went to Wuhan just before the outbreak, wasn't she? Ms. Merkel also visited uh, Glasgow and uh, Novartis with 100 million, so you have to do something. So you have these contracts, and in parallel, an advance payment was made to them, an investment advance, usually around 100 million. And the Novartis vaccine was novel. Those were bioreactors that it was made in, and it was a novel technology in production. You didn't need any uh, eggs, um, chicken eggs anymore in the pandemic. You didn't have as many um, chicken eggs anymore. So it was difficult, and what they did was they simply took less and they enhanced it. That's Glaxo and Novartis said, we don't need any eggs, we uh, use fast-growing cells. Um, that's um, cells from dog uh, kidneys, they grow like cancer cells, so they um, use those to multiply the, um, the vaccine. And in the summer, I said, well, uh, don't use these uh, vaccines um, because it hasn't been ensured that the proteins from these fast-growing uh, cells, uh, there's, uh, there are impurities, they could be there. So with um, chicken eggs, um, they always say if you're uh, allergic against chicken uh, eggs, then uh, be careful, there can be an anaphylactic shock. And with these, uh, uh, this vaccine, uh, one would have had to verify to make sure that this can't induce cancer because they have these fast-growing um, dog cells, and uh, it wasn't done, and they uh, said that um, in a uh, newspaper in the region of Flansburg. Um, I, I wrote in a one-page article uh, explaining this, and uh, Bild Zeitung, the national paper, um, read it too, and they um, said, they published that, uh, Wodak said that the new vaccine will cause cancer, luckily I never said that. 
that because otherwise I'd be a poor man now. But as Bildzeitung explains uh, or said that this Novartis vaccine uh, was cancerogenic, Paul um, Elkins Institute cancelled their uh, contract with Novartis and um, uh, 50 million doses weren't bought. Well, Wolfgang, fascinating. Congratulations, first of all. I, I googled this article of yours and the built article and you are called the expert there and so on uh, the status and the stadium or the status that we had you were quite unknown at the time and I think it's very incredible how did, did lobbyism work as well and it slipped through or how can you explain this well, they were still practicing, but it got ever better. The uh, attempt with SARS was really um, very amateurish, um, where they uh, got people together on uh, ICUs. Mr. Drosten was allowed to uh, uh, perform a test. Mr. Drosten said, uh, what, I have a test there, and he found the coronaviruses, the SARS viruses there. That's interesting to observe. Of course, the propaganda machinery was in development state at the time, but uh, you have to know that you need the media to push these things through. And if you didn't have the big newspaper built in Germany, on the line, it may have been may have been wrong. Maybe Glaxo um, um, bribed Bildzeitung. Well, it's similar to AstraZeneca, who were taken off the game now. And uh, well, yeah, there's so, some competition, and you have so to. So Glaxo carried on selling the uh, swine flu uh, vaccine, and uh, Novartis couldn't. Is that the point? Yeah, 34 million, that was Glaxo, and the others were Novartis. And uh, there was this uh, Mr. Stir who had uh, uh, raised the panic with um, uh, bird flu. He was involved as well. He's now the successor to Mr. Drosten in the um, federal government's uh, advisory committee. Well, that's very fascinating because at the same time everybody kind of refrained from vaccination because they thought this might have been the case and the other vaccines as well the cancerous issue and so on back then there was still a uh, practical uh, medication a telegram uh, published by peter schoenhofer uh, there was no advertising in it it was uh, charged but you always got the latest uh, information regularly it was very critical of this vaccine and I uh, cooperated with him he gave me a lot of information as a pharmacologist about the clinical studies the quality about the substances included uh, so I'm not a scientist who uh, can do his own research but I am somebody who uh, looks at science to take the right decisions and I was closely cooperating with him we also cooperated at, at uh, transparency subsequently and there were many um, physicians who were quite skeptical of this uh, vaccination. That's why against this vaccine, because uh, so few were injected in Sweden, where people believe the government uh, and trust it, and that they always uh, take uh, care of the population. As many uh, vaccine vaccinations were 
made, as in Germany, um, 4 million. Even though they only have 10 million inhabitants, we have 80 million. So suddenly they had twice the number of side effects, even though they had the same number of vaccinations. They had twice the number of uh, uh, reports, adverse effects reported. There's nothing to do with it. The Germans are so much more resilient. It has to do with the reporting system. So these are the news that are then published in uh, the papers. Um, that's um, what you could read in the uh, newspapers published by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, this is not uh, about... Um, the swine flu. This is in uh, 2019. He announced next pandemic could kill a billion people. Headline on page one, 30th of July 2018. So they're already preparing for the pandemic. And I found out about that uh, accidentally when we uh, looked into the experts who uh, supported uh, the decisions. Uh, this uh, fellow was involved. And he was a, a non-executive uh, director, so a very close uh, collaboration between the manufacturers. Um, so uh, the company that has the best connections to the press can use the press, and that, of course, costs a bit of money. It won't be done for free. One hand, um, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Like and, of course, there were regular press conferences at WHO, and that's a uh, report by a journalist, Frank Jordans was his name. He participated in one of those press conferences in May when they had threatened um, the uh, announcement of stage six. Many countries said, well, there's nothing's happening here. That'll be expensive. We can't uh, call a pandemic here. So a number of different countries uh, told WHO, you can't call a pandemic. Um, Britain, Japan, China, and others. Germany was there. Not Germany, no. And they didn't want to um, have a pandemic declared, and WHO said, okay, we'll uh, reconsider this. Thank you very much uh, for your suggestion. It was a good question. And then they still declared the pandemic anyway. And then we did this thing in the uh, um, Council of Europe. We tried to install a um, investigative uh, committee. Um, and um, we tried to do that very early on when we learned, by the by, by journalists who were the members of the executive committee that they're nearly all of them are closely linked to the pharmaceutical industry, that it was a um, rigged system that was quite um, embarrassing for WHO. Since then, they've made several pandemic exercises. They played a big role uh, with AIDS. Um, but it wasn't so obvious yet um, at the time. There were so many interests and so many things that played a role. But with the SARS outbreak in China, that was almost like an exercise. They looked at uh, into how it works with Corona. And uh, Mr. Drossen, um, 
um, was quite uh, instrumental there. Um, he did that again subsequently. Well, if there's, uh, there was SARS in 2002, then it would have happened again in subsequent years. They didn't just disappear. The variants um, keep popping up. They change all the time. They are coronaviruses. They um, keep modifying. They move around the world. They're responsible for some part of the uh, flu cases. The SARS uh, viruses were around in 2002, and they have continued to exist ever since. And there's no uh, dangerous uh, spike in the numbers of dangerous viruses. The only thing that, that was dangerous was in the computers uh, in Wuhan, where there is a high-risk lab, where bioweapons bio are made as well where they doctor artificially uh, manipulated viruses that are meant to be very um, dangerous, that is um, in a gray area nearly illegal because it's no longer legal in the US, so Mr. Fauci and others made sure that it would be done um, outside the country. Is there a location? Uh, in Germany, I don't know. Um, they can do what they want, really. I don't know. That would be interesting to know. There seems to be one in Berlin. A high security laboratory. Merkel opened it, uh, inaugurated it. So that is something. It's in the middle of it's the city. It's attached to the Robert Koch Institute. Yes, it's in the middle of the city. Um, it's something like on that island. Well, Nothing will happen. Uh, they're so secure, uh, their airflow is filtered and controlled, etc. Nothing can happen. But these dangerous uh, viruses can uh, cause a pandemic because they kill people and a um, dead person can't infect anyone else anymore. It's a self-limiting thing, as I said um, before. Uh, and they announce, oh, I make it even more dangerous, I make it even more dangerous, and then they get research money. But they were in the computer, but they were the model for for um, uh, the manufacture of these RNA uh, jabs, because the spikes of these dangerous viruses, they were used as a model, and they said we have to immunize people against this, even though this doesn't spread in the world, it's just coronaviruses that spread like they always have. Different variants of coronaviruses that constantly keep uh, mutating all over the world. As always, a question of uh, which ones you monitor, which ones you find, which ones you look for. Allow me one question. It's quite calming that it's not possible to produce a killer virus, which was just uh, limited to a certain extent. And, uh, well, maybe the researcher and their family. Why do they put so much money in it? Well, why do, do they invest so much money into dangerous weapons? Uh, I mean, we don't need them. Yes, but they're effective. Well, the argumentation, the, the reasoning is always, well, we have to do what the um, enemy does. We uh, have to know what they could do to us. So it's always this so it's a question um, of fear. Yeah, so it's these pandemic exercises, do you call? So these are not the exercises that we know, the like event 201, but these are the, the uh, games, so to say. 
No, no, these aren't any um, plan, um, plan scenarios, exercises. That's what uh, WHO uh, did. What we had in Hamburg, that was really limited. Um, probably it was um, vegetables that were um, that were contaminated because they couldn't find anything there. So that was pre-mediated? Is that what you say? Well, my uh, theory, the pattern that led to uh, the disease, the distribution of uh, who fell ill um, could be explained by moistening uh, vegetables um, when you take them to market uh, so they look uh, nice and fresh and if whatever you spray on it whatever water you spray on it um, is contaminated with uh, cordybacteria then that would cause these symptoms and um, I um, indicated that to um, uh, the uh, research institute in, in Hamburg and asked them well uh, look into this and bring along the public prosecutor but they never did but that had no money involved or did it no but with Ehek uh, there was a company that was uh, that immediately volunteered to um, um, start uh, um, performing uh, clinical studies because they had had a medication uh, available that's uh, against AHEC and uh, they were willing to do those studies and uh, uh, the drug unfortunately wasn't um, successful, it wasn't really helpful. But immediately uh, this uh, company had of course finally the opportunity of uh, performing clinical studies. You could see something similar in Ebola, with Ebola in Africa, the Ebola outbreak in uh, Guinea. Uh, could have been contained very easily because Ebola can only be transmitted um, through very close um, physical contact. You can easily identify and isolate the diseased and if um, you talk to somebody with Ebola you don't get infected. But if you care for them uh, as a carer, as a physician, uh, well it is transmitted via, via bodily fluids or if uh, people touched uh, the disease then they could have um, gotten um, infected, so that is uh, possible, that is dangerous, but if you know that, you can simply use hygienic measures uh, to contain such an outbreak. And WHO knows about this. In, in Urkonakre, I have um, um, a friend who has a, a lab there, which is co-financed by uh, Germany, um, that has a lot of know-how for diagnostics. And he called me at the time and he said, okay, we can do this. We can do the diagnostics to limit this, to isolate this. And they offered that. Um, 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 they offered it to the German embassy. <coughs> and they said, well, uh, couldn't you? They asked me, can't you help us? Uh, can you, can't you contact the German ambassador? And the ambassador said, no, no can do. That's uh, W. HO's responsibility and they um, procrastinated. It took months. Uh, many people died and in this period, I think it was MSD company, in that uh, period of time they made the clinical study with the first vector vaccine for uh, humans, so a genetically modified vector that was taken a virus that had been modified that uh, wasn't dangerous itself and they inserted a sequence that's uh, 
was to uh, make antibodies, just like with um, the current uh, vaccines. It's not an mRNA, uh, Moderna uh, vaccine, it wasn't, um, but it was tried. And this vaccine is available now against Ebola, and you need some time for a clinical study. Uh, if you quench the fire immediately, uh, you can't perform a study anymore. So they benefited from this. So there's always uh, benefits from the uh, fact that it took so long. And then there was a second uh, outbreak where this uh, was allowed, um, this medication was allowed in the Congo. Well, that is very bad, isn't it? In Sika, they tried to um, produce a vaccine as well, apparently not, not successfully. They sparked fear in the women against which is um, transmitted by insects, which may lead to um, miscarriages. And so they proclaimed an outbreak of Zika. And uh, there was, uh, I looked at the statistics of uh, uh, issues in, in birth and so on in Brazil at the time of Zika, and there was no change at all to be seen. Well, I had observed that situation at the time, and uh, on the border to Brazil in some neighboring country, uh, Zika was uh, at large as well, um, transmitted by mosquitoes or whatever, and they didn't have any um, strange situation there. No, and there was an initiative of someone who wanted to produce a Zika vaccine, and there was a number of attempts to do this, chikungunya, for example, a number. And that's always being discussed in the industrial uh, circles, what's being, what's going on, where's the clinical studies, you have a global map and you can see what vaccines are tested where. That's interesting. It's interesting to look at that map and then compare that to the stock news. If you know the two, you can get rid of WHO, really. And then, of course, this uh, theater of the MPOX, they decided to not call it monkeypox anymore, but MPOX, because that's better for business, uh, sounds a bit more modern. And, and then you can take, and they can take an old vaccine and revive it. Marburg, eight cases somewhere in Africa. It's like Ebola, it's the same transmission. And then now we've got these very important um, NCD panics, uh, pandemics, quote unquote. So what's that? That is, I'll, I'll leave the tension a bit for that and uh, come to the next chart first, which shows us what what ICDs we have in Corona. So we see the red, the blue circle, which has diagnostics, uh, COVID virus 19, 
uh, with the virus identified. Here, COVID-19 without the identified um, uh, virus. There is an ICD number for this. And then somebody in contact got sick and was in contact with someone with a positive test. This is the case here. And then on this side, we have a very strange ICD number, which you can invoice as well. That is, if the doctor finds that there is a vaccination necessary, and that means the patient doesn't want it. Otherwise, um, they would invoice the vaccine. And in this case, they just say it's indicated and it's not given. So they can invoice that the report to the health insurance that somebody didn't want the vaccine. That's quite tricky, really. And this is how to collect data. How much money are we talking about here? Well, I don't know. There was a fee. T there's a fee table to that. I could look that up. Um, so there is an enunciation fee, so to say. And then there are adverse effects. And if you report them, you get an ICD number as well. That's this uh, red oval here. <coughs> That's called prevention diagnosis. And then there's something else, a third thing, which is called post-COVID. And here we see different things. So very different multi-system inflammatory syndrome there's inflammations in many parts of the body. That's what the spikes do, by the way. If they get into the blood, wherever they get, they create inflammations in all the um, blood vessels, for example. That's caused by the spikes. And now coronaviruses do have spikes. And usually they don't get into the bloodstream. What does get into the bloodstream is these 192 million jabs that were given with MNR in Germany. They all go to the blood because they're given to the muscle, injected into the body. And they are in the plasma after five hours, one to five hours, you can see them. You can see the nanoparticles flooding. And in the first week, these nanoparticles are billions of them everywhere in every organ, most of them in the liver, but in the coronoids and the spleen, in the testicles, in the, in the guts, everywhere. You find these nanoparticles with the mRNA and they transit, they move into the body into the cells and trigger them to produce the spikes which make the symptoms syndromes, syndromes, which we don't connect here to the jab, but with a corona infection. Corona infection is something that we've always had for a long time, and in very rare cases only it had long-term effect. Influenza does that, by the way, as well. Other virus infects do that as well. There are long incidents. If somebody has an influenza, every doctor knows you if somebody really has a severe influenza, uh, doctors recommend patients to stay in bed and rest and not do sports because there is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in the body after every influenza, not only corona or COVID.
I have a short question. These nanoparticles, do they dissolve after time? or? Yeah, they're dissolved in the cell, and that means the RNA is, uh, the mRNA is released. It's lipides and uh, sugar molecules, lipid molecules, and they kind of imitate uh, a cell membrane. And the interesting thing is that this doesn't have an individual characteristics, and that means the immune system doesn't recognize them. So these nanoparticles is something that the body doesn't react to. They're just there. Yes, and they get everywhere. They're not caught anywhere. The nanoparticles, it's a stealth cap, really, uh, to bring the mRNA into the cells of the body. Well, um, I thought that anything that's unknown would be destroyed, um, not that there's a kind of a stealth moment there. No, no, that's because the body doesn't see them really, literally, and the symptoms are the spike symptoms, and they are toxic, and all of this is called post-COVID and uh, well paid for by the, for the doctors, and um, a reporting adverse effects of the vaccines is not That would have been the next question, of course. Yes, and the clinics that... Um, have post-COVID that's getting more and more. Many of these do not any do any differential diagnosis. And if they have a positive PCR test or were in contact with somebody who had a positive test, then that can be invoiced as ECD, ICD, as COVID, that's what we have them for, and then you get more money. So there's um, um, wrong initiatives and incentives. These are the different ICD numbers, um, just looking at this. Uh, I put in COVID, and you see all the post-COVID on the left-hand side, laboratory tests, and so on, infection by laboratory tests, virus uh, proven, virus not proven, and not found. So post-COVID is in there as well as a condition uh, without any specification. So it's absurd diagnoses which you can invoice here. Is that uh, special for COVID or is that um, usual for other diseases as well? Well, this is specific for COVID. There is a very general uh, post-effect of um, infection. I don't know if we had this in influenza. I looked it up, but it's not as differentiated as we have it here. So there's no post-measles syndrome that could be... Uh, specifically uh, charged for, and I can't um, separately charge for immunization against uh, measles. And as far as I know, there is no fee for the doctor to report that uh, somebody's not vaccinated. Tetanus or something? Maybe they introduce it for measles now, but uh, yeah. So all of these are developments that the WHO planned, uh, and this uh, numbers, these uh, keys are made by the WHO. So CD11 is the subsequent version? Yes, and it's developed and so on. And um, these are special ICDs, pandemic ICDs, so to say. But the ICD, that um, is the standard. Yeah, it's been implemented into the system 
and these are added. There's always things added, and this uh, basic renewal into a total systematic. I mean, it's the systematic that changed. You see these two ECDs, ICDs here. One is the anaphylactic shock, where you see it and you have it, and the other one is after COVID vaccine. That's two different things. Um, both of them can be taken or should be taken. It's hard to believe, really. Well, it's, it's about money in the end. So these are the things that WHO is uh, recommending. They want to do more. They want to move from a recommendation to a legally binding uh, declaration. They want to define everything all the scenarios that only have the potential to affect public health should be definable by the WHO and the actions to be taken should be defined and it's to be defined what the states and the governments and countries are to do if they have to mobilize, they have to follow WHO and if they don't do it, uh, the neighboring countries um, have to make sure that they do, however, probably NATO will move in then, and um, the general director general is entitled to do tons of things, but we've discussed this here as well, um, also introducing global health uh, certificates, uh, tests, vaccines, prophylaxis, healing, and air travel data as well. All of this is introduced, what has to report it, where, and so on. So the health industry has to get more money so that it can fight pandemics. It should get money and is not liable to show what it did with the money. So they get the money and they don't have to tell anybody what they did with it. Acceptance of passing off personal health data is something that comes in that worked well in the last pandemic. And also the WHA is entitled to define what is misinformation and disinformation. So if you don't say what WHO says, then you'll delete it. You'll be deleted or punished, or you lose your approbation. So you have to follow WHO. And in May, in the General Assembly, that's going to be discussed. And I hope there's enough countries um, who said we are out of this. We are elected governments. Um, we have our own sovereignty, our own system. People trust us. And now WHO wants to take that power from us and uh, do everything they want to do for their sponsors um, who haven't proven to be corrupt and they are visible, visibly corruptive, just follow the money. And this mafia to be entrusted with the world governments at the point when they say they want it, that's what's going on here, that's disastrous. We should really look at um, who votes how, because that is the interesting uh, thing to see. Well, I don't think it's going to pass through now in uh, May already. Um, is it a majority, majority vote? Well, there's a veto regulation, so I expect to be postponed and uh, come back later. Definitely, it'll come back. So uh, don't let, let loose. And it'll go to, to 
um, expert committees. And that's the lawyers discussing, mostly from the US. I've participated in some of these already. It's far from transparent. Um, it's got the ambassadors of people who work in the ambassador in the uh, embassies of the different countries and they are um, they are representatives sometimes it's the health ministers so we're not talking about any um, politicians yeah but it's delegations it's delegations uh, somebody for germany is brought there i was sent there once with Schmidt, the health minister there's five of us as the german delegation but the ambassadors aren't experts no they are supposed to get it um, they get instructions on how to vote. They are the representatives. They are the representatives of the different countries. And if they do care at all, um, then the government tells them what to do. But there's no parliamentarians in that. Nobody who's elected. Uh, like in some of the bodies where there's a parliamentarian committee, or like in Vienna. What do they have in Vienna? I always confuse them. Oh, what's the one in, in Vienna? OECD? The fellows with the uh, nuclear weapons, I think. OSCD and OSZE. So the economic people, anyway. And they are in Vienna and they have a parliamentarian assembly. And so they're the parliamentarians from the opposition and from the government parties can ask questions. So at least there is. Sl a slight uh, bit of transparency. But you uh, started by explaining the foundations of the German state. Um, a democracy principle, democratic principle, for instance, there's no feedback at all anymore. This is completely uh, ignored here. Yeah, they're far beyond anything that's discussed in democratic principles. And it's so many levels removed from what the people voted for. Yeah, that's what I said before. That's uh, interesting. That's the NCD alliance. That's been around for a while, and they came up with their recommendations. They have so-called pillars, governments, prevention, and the health systems. These are the three pillars that they rest on. And they came up with uh, demands and uh, there are many states where WHO made sure that there are contact people and they are funded and they are sponsored and they uh, set themselves up in the states. Often patient representatives, self-help uh, group representatives, politicians, they're not legalized by any way, um, they just get in here. And they are the partners of the national states. And then they inv invite them, and they have congresses worldwide, and so on. It's been going on for years, and nobody knows about this. Hardly anybody knows them at all. And they are now announced for the future to do many things. Um, if the WHO is entitled to take care of prevention, of 
health um, risks. So not, they're not talking about viruses or anything. Um, could be like, for example, alcoholism and uh, prohibit drinking, which is disgustable. And anything that may make people sick is what you can focus on and set up rules for the different states that they will have to follow then. What does NCD stand N for? NCD stands for non-communicable diseases. That's a special <laughs> and, and it says integrate NCD service into the pandemic response and beyond. That's the recommendation that they want. They want that in their services. So anything uh, you, you develop, um, they can involve this. Yeah, they will spark the fear. They will spark the fear in us, and they will tell us how to handle it. And they will say, we have to do something. This is very dangerous. And they, they say, this government doesn't do enough. And this country doesn't do enough. And maybe they'll prohibit McDonald's. I have my doubts, really. Well, I I wonder how to set it up if it's not communicable, what to do it. Well, it's easy to um, establish rules on how to deal uh, with these problems, and you can say these three problems or whatever, or when to take uh, palliative care and when do you have to do everything. It's like the blood lipids, for example. Yeah, they can do that, but I wouldn't be interested in Well, if I, as a doctor, don't follow these rules, I don't get the money simply for a start you get a liability issue well the main thing with this COVID um, story was that we need to protect ourselves protect others that's why we go along but um, if that's something they recommend then who wants to yes go along? but for example if you have high blood pressure you have a higher risk of a cardiac arrest can you drive a car driving a car is dangerous people who have diabetics People who mean have a hormonal disease or who are mentally ill, uh, what, what about them? And then you can prohibit them to do things. Unless they're treated with um, medication ABCD. Yeah, yeah, but you can do that only with a PAX passport, for example. They have to prove that they take the drug and so, so on. So one might introduce regular uh, routine examinations. Yeah, that's that's what they want to introduce. Um, they want to show that uh, people who are over 70 have to take a test um, for driving capability. Being old is a disease. And uh, although you know that elderly people cause less traffic accidents than younger people do, maybe a little bump into the garage wall when parking, they're more careful, basically. So this is um, the plans, and the conclusion is very simple, really. Well, maybe that's it. Um, I don't want to. I have taken a lot of times. So I think there's more guests waiting. Yes, others are waiting. Um, but I think it was very important to give us a great overview. 
And it is quite remarkable um, uh, if we look at the um, previous exercises and experiences of um, WHO, what suddenly uh, comes together here, uh, if you look at, the, look at it um, as a whole, it's really a People often ask me what to do, and I think subsidiarity is the most important rule of the, of the time. I have something about transparency here. Transparency is if I know what people do with the power I entrusted them with, and if we, I know them, that uh, we can look it up and check it up any time, um, that will lead to people taking care of the trust that they have been given, and uh, then I know that uh, my high valuable good is given in the same way and take, given the same care it should be taken. Um, this is an overview again of the society, from the levels of society, from the individual to the globe at the bottom, and we have the individual partnerships, uh, families, and so on. Well, we do not have anything direct, uh, and you can t address the person who's going off the track, and you can talk to them, and you, you discuss, and you find a solution. That is easy. You can correct things easily, and the bigger things get, uh, the more confused and complicated it gets, and the more we need uh, media and a dependence on the media. And here, communication plays a role, and corruption plays a role. You can buy media and pretend things are there that are not there. And this is why it's important that the important function of society is provided where we can control them to be proper and going on. So it's prevention, for Yes, educating the children, for example. We don't need Bologna for that. Automated uh, checking and schematizing. No. And in many of the things, in education and food, research you have to look at uh, in detail and science um, to see how it works, because science is always globally, uh, global. And setting this up properly uh, is something I don't have a solution but I think it's very interesting to spend a couple of thoughts about. Well, transparency is um, all important, obviously. Uh, you've shown that economically everything uh, overlaps, but um, it's the necessary uh, consequence of this capitalist system that's designed to keep growing. Uh, so I think as long as we're inside this economic system, it's a vicious circle. It's really impossible to get out of it. So that's the perversion of the system that we see right now. Let's, let's look at the body, for example, uh, again as an example. Looking at the stomach, the stomach is hungry, it wants to get everything in. And that is how economics are, is the motor of um, the society, finding food. That's the egoism that makes us move. We want to have a good life. I want to, my family wants to. That is um, wanting to have something good in my private life. That's why people go to work, that's why people invent things, they want to improve life, they do things for others as well and enable others, we have that as well, of course, but this motor is the economic system which follows and has to follow very strict rules like the market in Bremen with a roller and a sword, making sure that nobody uh, betrays anybody else. And this was 
the case in economics before, and especially the countries and the states in the past, and the bodies who had these rules that worked, who were not wild pirates, they got rich, and things worked well because they cooperated, they could share workload, they organized and made money with that. It worked very well, and uh, they didn't kill each other all the time and these are things that have to work in economics and that's why I say um, at the moment economic is the stomach digesting the heart. Well I think that the uh, situation like it used to work in the 60s, 70s, 80s to an extent and um, well you have to differentiate as well um, the economic system is based on exploitation of other countries as well but I don't think we can turn back the um, the wheel. Uh, I think that what we have now is really the logical consequence of this type of uh, economic activity and that maybe um, is we need a different approach. It has to do with the way uh, money is generated, uh, that, that banks can create money and um, companies that earn from ill health, we don't need to talk about this, that really puts everything uh, on its head. And if we uh, want to start, then we need, uh, we don't need the WHO at all anymore, but it would be nice, of course, if there were uh, any think tanks or whatever. Well, I have something here uh, for somebody uh, should um, remember um, if you want to become uh, politically active, um, you don't have to have a tattooed on your uh, underarm, but but it's good to remember that a system is good and survives a long time if it's transparent. If it's transparent, if you uh, recognize mistakes, if everybody involved knows what's happening, can influence so that you can take it to the right um, way, to the right uh, target together, that you cooperate. That's what you need transparency for, and that's uh, the S, the bigger um, uh, system is, that's S size. So if I have um, um, a big um, chessboard with uh, numerous figures, it, you can't handle it. A, a normal-sized chessboard, um, that's difficult enough. Um, but if it's a big board, uh, we know what the different um, figures can do, the pawns, the king, um, the knight, etc. If there are too many of them, you can't really handle it. If something gets out of size, it gets out of hand, you can't handle it anymore. It doesn't work anymore. And um, society is the same. And, and there's no clear responsibility anymore, is there? Well, you don't know who needs to um, take action because everybody um, depends on others with the health system right now. That's uh, the way it is. If the contractual landscape that we have, there are nearly 100 health insurance companies in Germany, and they can all make their own selective uh, contracts with individual medical centers, clinics, etc. here and there. They make contracts for their insured. 
And these contracts are negotiated to find legally. It costs an enormous uh, strength to do this. It's a huge effort. And so the insurance companies try to garner certain um, benefits for some insured that they feel are um, beneficial to them because they try to reduce their risk. So either they uh, look after people who are very um, valuable in terms of the um, health system. So they are, um, if they're um, ill, then uh, it's no problem if, the, if you get um, um, funds for it. But if somebody has a psychological um, condition, for instance, a mental condition, and they only take a pill 100 days a year, then they won't get, uh, the health insurance won't get enough money. If they take 180 pills a year, then that's fine. Then the in, uh, insurance company gets a special uh, payment of what God knows, 2,000 euro or whatever. The health insurance companies know that very well, of course, they calculate it. And so they make contracts with the pharmaceutical industry that look after the mentally ill because they have an interest and because the pharmaceutical industry knows that the health insurances have an interest in the patients taking the pills so that the insurance companies get the refunds. Uh, so it's a question of size and uh, mentioned uh, earlier already multiplied by C by complexity. The more you rely on specialists who have their own interests, more you're exposed to private uh, interest, corruption, and um, so subsidiarity is the magic word. Subsidiarity is the precondition for people having a say in democracy. There is no democracy without subsidiarity. Well, I think we should turn to our next guest, really. Uh, we may carry on with the discussion at another point. I thank you, Wolfgang, for the presentation so far, and we have got a wonderful thunderstorm around here. I love rain, and uh, <coughs> that is the answer, in a way, um, what's coming down from the skies fits in nicely with our spiritual aspects that we're going to look into now. We've got Hartmut Stieb with us. Hartmut Stieb, are you with us? Yes, we can hear you. And the video, then you should see me, right? Thank you for being with us and waiting so patiently. We had expected this presentation to be a bit shorter, but it was so rich that we couldn't have abbreviated. It's I have to admit it was quite thrilling, thank you very much, because you touched on so many different aspects and you can see that the whole issue encompasses all of life really, all uh, the information that's available. Uh, well, thank you very much, I learned a lot, I couldn't remember everything, but we can read up on it, we can uh, watch it again. Yes, we're going to publish the presentation, we've got the archive as well on our website, um, corona-alschers.org, you can see the archive there, which has been built up now, all the uh, sessions are linked and the automated transcripts are there. Some of 
them also edited, a few edited ones, and uh, we want to publish all the knowledge that we have joined here, including the studies referred to the presentations and so on. So let us come to you. We have um, met at a beautiful opportunity recently, and I'm happy to um, have you on the show. We, you have been through many things. You are uh, from the church, and in this sense, we wanted to look at the role of the churches and the Christian community, really, in the crisis. Maybe you'd like to introduce yourself and then go ahead. Well, my name is Hartmut Steg. I'm from Stuttgart, as uh, Germans can hear from my dialect, so I can't avoid it, but it uh, doesn't have to be hidden because uh, it's a very beautiful region. We have beautiful sunshine right now as well. I was uh, born and raised in Stuttgart, have spent all my life in Stuttgart city. I'm married, and my wife and I have a uh, conciliatory uh, marriage uh, between Baden and Württemberg from the two regions. That's an insider joke for Germans now, of course. But we um, are a good match. We've been married for 48 years now. And my wife and I have five daughters, but that would be lopsided, so we had five sons as well. We knew uh, we didn't have to wait for quotas, for gender quotas. Uh, we achieved that without legal requirements. And now we arrived in the next generation. Of course, we have 20 grandchildren, which is a very nice thing to have. I'm a family man, as you can see. Um, by profession, I'm a uh, civil servant in administration in the municipal administration of the city of Stuttgart. But after training, um, after the um, public administration college um, degree, I went into uh, church administration, worked there for 14 years. And then I was uh, appointed to the um, Free uh, Church Alliance, which is a free um, alliance, which is not part of the church structure. It is independent. It is an uh, alliance of um, people from different churches, different confessions. So in this case, alliance means cooperation. We are really um, very early ecumenical movement, basically. And I was uh, the Secretary General for 31 years, and I've been retired for three uh, years and a bit now, which is something that I can only recommend to you, particularly if you had 30 uh, years worth of holidays before that. So then it's uh, worthwhile retiring. It's a nice part of my biography. And then maybe one more aspect, um, I'm still very um, committed to, uh, or deeply involved in something called uh, Right to Life. So I've been involved in that for many years, and I participated uh, in the March for Life in Berlin. And it's interesting to me as well, if you uh, have observed the situation uh, in this context, you mightn't be as surprised as others that in other uh, questions of life, in this uh, terrible uh, corona uh, policy, uh, they create this uh, fear. Um, 
with um, ideological um, arguments. That takes us into the midst of the topic, really. I'm relatively old. I can talk a lot, um, but that's how you recognize old people as well. Yes, thank you for that introduction. I think that gives us a good view of your background. During the pandemics, you have had a lot of experience. Maybe you can just uh, tell us about what went on in the church uh, sector and according to a view. Maybe I can start by telling you why I uh, looked into these things in the first place. Of course, um, you're a, um, a attentive uh, person, and uh, I wasn't uh, a little surprised uh, three and a half years ago when uh, you got the impression that the world is um, suddenly uh, going crazy, and I was wondering how come. So I was wondering that myself. And uh, I got a, a um, newsletter by the uh, church, um, of course, here in Wattenberg, that there were 40 people uh, dying every day, and I was wondering, like, what's unusual about that? Because I found at some stage that life begins with birth, and then every day um, people are born, and then every day people die as well. So I asked um, um, the um, administration, how many people die um, every day in March, and they didn't know for the prior year, or at least they pretend like they didn't. And so uh, figures only mean anything if you have a point of reference there. There was no reference available there, and it took a month before I finally through uh, numerous uh, contacts, um, it became possible for me to um, um, get a journalist to ask uh, the government, the, the state government, during a um, press conference what the reference figures would be, and uh, our minister president um, didn't really know how to answer this. It but then, suddenly, maybe by coincidence, 24 hours later, the figures were available, while previously at the statistics office in the state of Baden-Württemberg and the national statistics office, there were no figures on how many people had died in the prior year. Now, suddenly, figures were available, and uh, if you looked at them in detail, you know, you observed it much more closely than I did, uh, that from the end of April, more or less, the statistical um, uh, National Statistics Office uh, came up with daily analyses, so uh, you could see how many people died on a day-to-day -day basis, and I found that there is no reason for panic, because in 2020, March and April, no more people died than would have been normal, but they now had a new diagnosis, so people died of COVID. A little bit later, the Minister-President Söder of Bavaria uh, uh, made uh, the point that we couldn't accept that every day a uh, plane with 400 passengers crashes on a daily basis, because that's what we can compare this. And I wrote to him, 
uh, that this is really popu uh, populist because um, he would have had to say that really we have seven jumbo jets crashing with 2,000 people uh, um, just like last year, except that now there's one uh, plane that has uh, people who have been tested positively for COVID. In the past, we didn't know whether they had COVID or flu or whatever. So um, from day to day, I grew more weary of this because I found that there are no facts justifying the declaration of a pandemic and no facts that was rapidly written into the um, German Infection Act, uh, that there was no such emergency as it was uh, added to the act. And I looked at um, uh, the various uh, terms, as has been mentioned earlier. I just joined you then that the question of uh, the difference of a pandemic is quite unclear. A legal expert would say they're all fuzzy uh, legal terms, but it certainly is worse than fuzzy, is completely undefinable. And that makes it difficult because the uh, head of the WHO says it's a pandemic, then it's a pandemic, and nobody can justify it, nobody can verify it because there are no clear facts. And this is something that I find uh, quite frightening, that even in the German parliament, if it just went along, believed it, and they all determined that there was a national emergency, even though there was no facts to corroborate this. And so that's how I started looking into that, and I uh, wrote to a few people about my findings in April 2020, because you can't communicate individually with every single one that takes too much uh, time and so became a, a circulator and I just sent out the 94th one to people, to multipliers who get it. Um, um, pointing uh, to the alternative facts, as you have been doing in an exemplary manner as well, uh, to put facts on the table that are normally never see the light of day. And that is the that terrible thing about it. And then I, uh, the, the churches, um, I was quite uh, surprised. Uh, when uh, politicians fail across the board, I think I have to say it that way, that the churches who in the past had a, a bit of a socially critical approach, that they allowed themselves to be brought online, that they had no um, questions, critical questions on all those issues, that they simply agreed Maybe they even suggested um, um, the closure of churches in April 2020, uh, Easter time. And I never understood this, because we Christians have this message that tells us there's no reason um, to be um, uh, to be paralyzed by any type of fear. Uh, we're approaching the um, 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 this year's Easter, and there's no reason uh, for us to fear death. A, a friend of mine wrote to me. He uh, told me that he doesn't understand why um, 
people are so afraid of death, they should simply um, accept the good news and uh, then they needn't be afraid of death anymore. <coughs> And he was among the vulnerable, uh, of course, at age 79. So, by way of summary, it has been and still is frightening for me that the churches didn't take a critical view of these uh, requirements uh, that they were faced with, simply adopting them without unreflecting, um, unthinkingly. Sometimes they went beyond the call of duty. Um, in Baden-Württemberg, for instance, um, it was said that a distance of 1.5 meters had to kept between people at assemblies, and the state church in um, um, Baden-Württemberg said, well, we'll make it two meters. So they just um, added to it. That hurts me as a Christian. It hurts some Christians, but it's really amazing to see how many simply went along with this mainstream and how it simply went on and uh, how the churches, instead of um, spreading the alternative message, I have overcome the world, Jesus says, um, that the churches simply went along with uh, um, fear and that they were as fearful as everybody else, at least. I think it's quite notable, as you've mentioned, the Christian message is something that should leave you completely fearless. And there is the um, issue of uh, gratefulness and uh, people who are in fear and emergency who have to be given an anchor in uh, the context of my petition in March, I got a lot of feedback and people told me that that's unbearable. I'm a Christian. I want to go to church, especially in these difficult times. And I want to connect with people who are not fearful either and support each other. And I was extremely puzzled by the brutality, I have to say, that people in the last hours of their life were not left and let uh, allowed to meet the community, meet their spiritual leaders and so on, that they were left alone and isolated and couldn't support each other. That is so unchristian, so against the spirit of everything that we've that we've uh, been taught and which is believed. Uh, how can something like that extremely happen? Well, the last question is the most difficult one. How is this possible? I, it's something I can't explain. Um, I think it's the worst kind of failure of the churches that uh, they left uh, fear, uh, uh, people who are afraid, who are dying, who are uh, depressive, alone. And um, a look at Jesus' life shows that he had no fear of touching people who were, who were ill. And even if I look forward to, uh, if I look forward to eternity and to heaven, I don't need to be afraid of uh, getting infected. You don't need to be um, negligent. Uh, that's one thing. But to 
exclude others because they are afraid or because they um, are afraid of the unvaccinated, that happened as well. That is something I can't understand. I think the church gave itself up, lost itself because it didn't do what it must have done. Uh, based on its own message and this is frightening and um, that was the way I felt about it and many people felt about it like that because um, the Protestant church that I come from, um, they often follow the mainstream more than their own principles. And with the Catholic Church right now, you have uh, the impression that they want to go further than the Protestant church. Now, if you consider that we have a lot of people um, leaving the church, many more than ever before, and they always say, oh, that's because of the child abuse sort of thing, that, um, and that's absolutely unforgivable, and it's understandable that people should uh, turn their backs on the church on the foot of that. But there's also other questions, for instance, the ethical question of the uh, marriage for all, and people uh, might have said, well, the um, Bible says something else about the marriage. How does the Protestant church um, go so far and follow the zeitgeist or the mainstream media? And this really um, fits the picture now. And maybe that, that might explain why that happened with COVID as well. Obviously, the church, most of its, um, of the people in um, positions of responsibility um, in the churches, um, neglected um, their own message. We have our own message, particularly in ethical terms, the uh, charity, mercifulness, um, approaching people who need uh, human warmth. That doesn't seem to work in times of crisis. And that is really a failure. I don't think you can't um, change that well you could change it but you can't really say that this is um, uh, the right thing to do well the churches have uh, economic entities like the uh, hospitals and care homes which have an important role in germany and have are privileged um, and that gives them a special responsibility also looking at the added Christian value which they put foremost and that exactly would have been to at least try to find out whether it's all right and uh, help the people before you send your healthy staff home uh, people who came to work and wanted to help others and send them home because of an idiotic test Yes, that's really, really bad. That's what I said, that the Catholic, uh, that the Protestant churches, but I, I didn't monitor the Catholic church, but I think it was the same, that the churches didn't use their special added value that you have, that we have with our um, Christian values. 
and that they simply kowtowed um, to the authorities and that they didn't meet the uh, didn't live up to their main challenge to look after the vulnerable the old the dying and that they um, failed uh, people that they left them alone and that made people ill as well so um, i uh, know um, about a um, over 80 year old woman who uh, said well i have to die anyway but i would like to live until then and i uh, want uh, if i die of COVID, that's the way it is but i want to live until then i don't want to be left alone and that was really bad that people couldn't visit their um, um their relatives and you had those strange um requirements we know what infectious disease protection is um, if you go to an, an infectious disease um ward um, there were always protocols in place to to protect yourself against this. Also in the diaconics uh, clinics and the hospitals, there is hygiene experts, people who are experts on hygiene and these things. And they should have simply not forget what is in their textbooks. And uh, I think on the other side, it's the church entities, the companies that followed the incentives that the special payments for COVID gave lots of money to the hospitals if they played along. So there, this was a systemic corruption in terms and uh, that is what the church uh, hospitals followed just like the others. And that is something the former health minister Spahn said we'll have to forgive each other a lot. I wonder how the church is going to cover that. Well, that's an important point. Um, and especially this um, blunder is something that some of the some politicians seem to move towards let alone the motivation um, i haven't heard of any church leader yet say that we went wrong maybe here and there somebody hints at that maybe we've left the elderly alone a bit too much it was especially interesting to see at the health minister that at that early stage he knew there would be a lot to forgive so then the question is of course why didn't they start not to make these mistakes that you'd have to give later on and that indicates that he and many others knew more than they pretended to know and these mistakes which you just addressed are known this is something that one could have seen are easily after thinking uh, and saying that you don't have to go down to that fatal road and uh, I think I'm interested to see when the church will admit to these sins. First of all, it would be much more important to awake and uh, do what they are supposed to do, which is pass on the message of uh, Jesus Christ and we're coming to 
Easter. And that should be done. And that's what they didn't do when their churches were closed. Yes, and the function of the Samatharian, which is a role of the church, refining and uh, defining its identity, are that important. Maybe I can add at this point, uh, first of all, for these insights in the church. Um, I'm uh, baptized in the evangelic church and I went to church not only for Christmas and since the pandemic I didn't manage to put my foot inside the door there because I think it was so false and I'd like to pick up on this point the identity you've talked about the failure failure of the church and that's a term that can be applied to all institutions really the parliaments uh, uh, the jurisdictions and so on. The question I have is, is it a failure or is it just a, a declaration of bankruptcy, which we only see now in the context of such a situation, um, which is the institution? And uh, you've just said, You've mentioned the message of Jesus Christ, and in the end, this is really something, the message that you don't have to fear anything, neither death nor anything else, if, you don't, if you're not afraid of death, you don't have to fear life. And if we look at what the church did and its spiritual leaders did, I wonder whether these spiritual leaders actually believe in what they say or whether this is just uh, words. What's your impression? Well, I took that headway because um, it uh, became apparent in the corona, corona pandemic. Um, I really have the impression that large parts of the church have forgotten their message and that they rather follow the societal mainstream Maybe a simple example, but uh, the last synod of the EKD, last meeting, uh, last autumn, the uh, friend of the climate uh, gluers, they were allowed to talk at the convention. Um, that was made a church topic, um, and the church should take a different position in terms of climate change um, rather than this ideologic approach. And I think you're quite right in saying that the church has to return to passing on its core message. Every company knows this. The core competency has to be played out, and the church doesn't do this because it is much too adapted to the movement in society rather than offering uh, what it has to offer. It has a lot to offer, but apparently many of the functions in the church are not convinced of what they have to say. That's the major point. How credible can a church be if its spiritual leaders don't believe in what they say? So they can get up on the chancel and uh, say they, they're not authentic in what they say. At the moment, things are going uh, upside down. We don't really know what the automotive companies do, what the train 
the national train does. You can well imagine uh, that Daimler-Benz um, is not training its people in the D German railway systems or let's take Porsche, for example. They're successful. They're not going to do this. But the churches have their top staff trained in the German state universities. And how, where, where should the competency come from? So you could look at this much more differentiated uh, churches would have more ability to take effect than they have, but it's pure madness coming from the old state church systems um, from history. And of course, um, this is something that you have to move away from. And uh, it's not so much the question on whether a uh, preacher asks the right questions. The question is whether he, for himself, in the their life really live out the core message of the church. There are these people. It's always difficult to come up with a general uh, um, judgment here. There were churches, great people in them, who <clears throat> understood, and you've had some um, preachers here in your sessions, and uh, who came forward and speak out, but they had to pay dearly for it. And um, the people from the churches had to be suffering sanctions similar to scientists who spoke out. And uh, <clears throat> the church was not open to dialogue any more than society was. It was all equalized, and um, that is very, very pitiful. Yes, um, the evangelic churches um, are paid by tax funds. Uh, which are collected by the state, but the churches are rich, and uh, so um, there's not such a, a lot of economic pressure that <coughs> one should have said that we don't go that way. We'll stand up for our followers, and um, they are not uh, completely in financial issues. Of course, there's uh, connections if the spiritual leaders um, go along with what the government says, then for the individuals in that organization, it's difficult to move away. But as a whole, the big churches could have objected to that. And the free churches um, are funded by their members. And they're also, we didn't see any direct link. I don't know if I'm informed right here. But the pressure to go along with what the government says wouldn't have been so economic. Well, I don't think there was much pressure economically, but if it were, it wouldn't have been any reason whatsoever for a church why they should take a different situation and position from their own core message. This mainstream issue is rather a question of conviction. You want to stand up well and uh, have a good image. I just mentioned this in the discussion. The tax, uh, church tax, is something that one should ponder about. Where you said, well, I don't go to this church anymore. I don't. I'm out of this. Uh, consider if people leave the church. I have to wonder why they do that, and I have to look at why. How many people are 
disappointed because the church didn't take its role and the role they assigned it to it. And that doesn't seem to take place, this consideration, at least. I haven't seen this by any representatives of the churches so far. I um, worked in a free uh, church movement, the Economic Alliance, um, were, that weren't so strict, but it was a very depressing situation to see what I stand for and what we want is that people like me, as a Christian, I want to spark courage in the people and uh, not look at individuals such as it's a quite not the question whether somebody at the end of their life doesn't do much difference. But if I can accept that message of belief <coughs> and uh, people <coughs> who live in their relationship with God, um, it's um, strange to see that the church doesn't promote this in the first place, but that the church is seen as a part of society, as an NGO without its special challenge um, of Christianity and uh, if one wanted to reduce it to mercy, um, which is wrong, it failed. Uh, are the one of the biggest employers in Germany and it's disaster because the people who didn't follow that vaccination mandate are simply kicked out. And uh, in that sense, they're not better by a hint than the others. This is a massive fail. <coughs> and I hope that there will be a cleanup of this. I haven't given up hope completely yet. What's, what's the development that you see in the communities now? There is a gap uh, becoming visible. Some have seen what went wrong, others are still in the belief that it was all fully okay. And do you see any kind of growing together and lessons being learned where meetings are possible now? Do you have any insight on how this is handled in the different individual churches, the free churches maybe? Or is this just covered up and not uh, tabooed and tabooed? Well, there are, thankfully, Christian communities who simply didn't go down that line. There were some churches who simply disobeyed doing their services. Um, and if you're in a village as a preacher, you can do this. And if the community uh, goes along, there are some churches that never missed a service, but it's a very small minority, a small group. And for the others, I don't have the impression that anything has woken up. They think, and that's the narrative, which Lauterbach and the ministers and others foster. We managed well in the crisis. It worked okay, so let's look forward. But that is a danger if we uh, push the failures under the rug, you're going to trip over them sooner or later. And uh, we really need to look at things. And as I'm strongly in favor of Wolfgang Kubicki's uh, enquete commission that he 
suggested uh, that we really have an open assessment um, that would be necessary in the churches and should be done. The great fear is even if there were a commission, it's the same people who decided the measures before, and that can't be the case. So um, who was involved in the decisions can't be involved in that commission and that committee. So people who weren't close to the government, otherwise it's just going to be a showcase and uh, uh, go around the circles with a lot of money and uh, taxpayers' money and uh, the result is foreseeable. There is a film on this, um, um, please uh, forgive me, finally stupid. Um, there is a little video clip that shows this, and um, this is the intention to, without looking any regret, showing any remorse, uh, that we have a flash um, review of the pandemic uh, coming to the end that we managed well. That's quite a loss of power. It would be good to have a confession if we stay in the church, for example, and um, admit to our sins. And um, <coughs> the, um, the uh, it's, it's good to uh, agree to the um, a problem that we have, uh, and uh, I uh, force people to uh, wear uh, the mask, and uh, that may be a guilt that I need to confess to and that I need to look at, and uh, so maybe I didn't completely agree but I did vaccinate people. Um, so there's reasons to go for this and to admit to a certain fail that one has and uh, be able to do things to do good. And uh, I think that's good for your inner peace and uh, rest of mind and I think that could be a good way and a good approach. And uh, so maybe many people um, lock away from this. Yes, I 100% agree. We have to uh, see where we went wrong. We have to agree to it and uh, have remorse. And then that's the basis for forgiveness, forgiveness. And then we could see how to uh, compensate the damage. Of course, the damages and the uh, deaths can't be resurrected. Well, we believe in that. Um, there are damages that are irrevertible. And you can do something to appease those who suffered from it. And I think that is a way that you have to know it has to be admitted, it has to be made public, and it has to be regretted. And then we have to see how to limit the damage as well. 
that would be important for confidence and trust to regrow. It's obvious and statistically it's proven that trust in churches have massively suffered in the past years. A disaster in 2020, people uh, left church uh, in great amounts. Well, it's the anthroposophic area uh, sector. I've heard of that. And it's notable that this is no difference to be seen, really. Maybe to get back uh, to the question of the system, um, um, because you mentioned um, uh, Kubicki, I, I wouldn't um, call him or use him as a crown, uh, 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 witness of a crown. Um, he was a hardliner as well. Well, it's nice to hear any utterance that makes sense that he says. Really. Sometimes he's right. Yeah. Um, that's maybe a, a unique selling proposition, um, but yeah, anyway, you had mentioned or indicated that the church um, at some stage uh, was critical of um, society and over the last few years it um, seems to have worked only um, in the context of the mainstream. I can only remember, or, or all I know about is the uh, Latin American Christian uh, movements. I don't know how that happens in Germany, but uh, they seem to be going along with everything that's on vogue, um, uh, climate um, protection and uh, uh, whatever, um, without uh, valuing it. Could you give an example from the history of the church where the churches opposed the powerful? That was the one, the first question. And the second would be it's timeless really there's the church convention which is basically um, the uh, public appearance of the um, church the biggest public appearance they have politicians uh, giving speeches there or um, also Eckhart von Pirschhausen, for instance. So that's uh, mainstream, uh, pure mainstream. And then the third question, how can the churches reinvent themselves? And um, I um, think that uh, maybe there's a, a larger uh, disentanglement uh, from the church, even though the free churches um, went along as well. But would you have an idea of how uh, to make the churches more secular? Well, you asked a lot of questions now, of course. Um, that would be really three different uh, presentations that I could give to differentiate here. Um, I uh, remember uh, something that a um, Bishop of the Church of Württemberg said in the past, um, he was still a different caliber, he said all truth begins with differentiation. I think he's right. But uh, as you say, uh, that the church was more critical. I can speak for the um, Protestant church. Well, I'm not speaking for the Protestant uh, church. I use the example of the Protestant church. I have to be careful what I say here. But the uh, church conventions, for instance, maybe you can use 
that as an example. If the church conventions uh, over the last few years, my observation here is since the 1960s, 1968 or so, they uh, drifted ever further left. And then over many years, they were actually critical of society from a leftist point of view. That was a minority view, of course. And now, um, um, everybody doesn't have to be of the same opinion, but now we get the impression that this uh, leftist uh, opinion has become mainstream now, all the way into the media. All these questions that we have today is mainstream and the uh, federal government uh, sees dangers coming from the right wing all the time, but the um, lack of constitutionality of the left radicals seems to have been um, fallen out of um, attention. So um, the left uh, view, leftist view, is mainstream. So actually, they stuck to their guns, actually. In a way, however, that is quite disastrous. And I agree that the church conventions are no corrective uh, for society. Um, I haven't seen the, um, the program for the next church convention now, but the churches, the church convention could, of course, um, create a forum there for a discussion uh, between maybe the co uh, Corona Committee and the health minister. That would be something, but it's not happening. I imagine that you weren't invited. Not yet, no. Well, I uh, spoke to the Secretary General of the Church Convention some 15 years ago or so, uh, suggesting could we speak about the right to life, um, unborn children, uh, discussing all the legal uh, obstacles. Uh, the new government wants to get rid of all those obstacles now uh, to abortion, that is. Um, and it's not happening. There are um, uh, three right-to-life groups that applied uh, this um, time around for this convention, but they were excluded. Um, so there's no justification, no uh, um, explanation, so no transparency, um, dialogue, well, only in their own bubble, um, even though the church convention claims to be transparent and uh, interested in dialogue. So the uh, church convention could ask now the question of how can we mend society, how can we get bring people together? We'll have to wait and see what they have on offer, but I, I'm afraid that we won't hear any of that. And we could uh, add a lot of things there on top. Um, well, I do believe that churches throughout history, well, we have 2,000 years of church history. I'm not an expert, of course, and um, for one thing, and also it would take us too far right now. But again and again, the church uh, has taken a um, critical view. And the people from the Old Testament usually criticized or addressed their criticism against governments and said, well, hold on a second, you can't go on like this. And often of them, uh, many of them were prosecuted, jailed. I could quote biblical stories here. Uh, there's nothing new there. And that is part of the job of uh, the churches to um, 
reflects um, a mirror image back to society, and um, you kind of wonder where did the Christian message stay during the COVID pandemic? One example, um, the inventive or um, uh, the strongest elements of opposition to the GDR regime was the churches. That was the core of the resistance against this totalitarian regime. And the pastor who um, works in the uh, same church in Leipzig where, where this started, he's 100% online with COVID uh, measures. I know a lot of people who were quite active um, back at, in the day in, in this church. They left the church because they are disgusted with it. People who uh, grew up in the church, basically, and experienced the opposition to the totalitarian regime of the GDR by the churches are really disappointed to see how they just go along now. So they have posters against um, the violation of the freedom of the press in Turkey, um, and they're blind to our own situation. Well, I fully agree with you. And my impression is that it is particularly the Christians in the uh, eastern part of Germany are more critical of um, these measures, not in the uh, management levels of the churches, but the um, priests, yes, um, they um, participate in, um, well, criticism. Um, there is a portal, a small portal, Christians rising up, and they do ask questions there. And I think there is more willingness to ask critical questions in the East than in the West of Germany. And, uh, well, the political turnaround in uh, the, the fall of the GDR was more than t 30 years ago now, and many people never experienced it. They weren't even alive at the time. So, um, let me quote Justina Lieberknecht, um, who was also a um, priest. She was a minister president in Thuringia, and she told um, the um, church that you can't leave people alone. Um, and just like with Kubicki, um, it's not always that they're not always doing the right thing. I don't want to glorify people, but I'm happy about any individual who, um, if they say a lot, they say a few reasonable things in the meantime as well. Well, um, there are, of course, um, nursing homes that had a lot of staff uh, commuting in from uh, the Czech Republic along the Czech border there. And those people were excluded all of a sudden. They had great problems uh, keeping operations running. There were um, Nursing homes where mayors had to send in the fire brigade in order to help out because staff couldn't commute, couldn't cross the border anymore. Sometimes people were found dead in their beds because for days nobody looked after them. Terrible things going on. Well, there's this book as well by Professor Moll, who wrote a book. Um, he's a Catholic um, theologian who uh, wrote the uh, book witnesses for Christ. 
where um, pastors um, uh, describing how pastors behaved during the NSA regime, the Nazi regime, um, where some people oppose this and it's about charity, not excluding people. And I had the great privilege of um, exchanging a few emails with Professor Moore because my great uncle was included, who was a um, Catholic priest and opposed, uh, opposed uh, this euthanasia policy. I was really surprised. He's so deeply um, involved in this um, business now and that he couldn't see. This is again um, in an entirely different context, of course, but that uh, he couldn't see that there were situations all of a sudden that for people, for um, the Christians, um, created situations that are very troublesome, very difficult for people. So they're so proud uh, of, uh, rightly proud of the people who um, were able to influence um, people not to participate in the Nazi regime and, uh, and that they uh, failed to see that people died alone uh, during the COVID pandemic now, that you don't see the parallels uh, to the past. Um, um, that um, you were threatened not only by death, but um, you just had to take the courage to live according to your faith um, and say, no, this does not go along, this does not match my convictions, but maybe um, people allow themselves to be um, pulled into this uh, fear and maybe um, charity then means to protect people from infection. Well, that is part of, I don't know if we can say, uh, my learnings from this uh, COVID pandemic, people hoped that uh, we had learned from history. And for me, it's really very embarrassing that as soon as um, people have to transfer a bit, you're allowed to compare a lot, but we never are allowed to compare anything to the Third Reich because then you're immediately a right-wing radical. This is not uh, acceptable at all. But we should have learned at least not to repeat the same mistakes we made back then. And now I did make that comparison, of course, it's, I, I try to avoid that always. But it's a disaster that uh, people aren't willing to really learn from history if you um, do that. Um, um, somebody said, um, then you're uh, either doomed. Uh, and I think um, uh, that's what happened to us. I, I learned over the last few years how a uh, democratic society can be, uh, turn into a dictatorship. All it takes is a bit of fear that you put into people, and the federal government managed to do that. As we know, in March 2020, this um, paper of the Ministry of the Interior that exactly targeted uh, the idea of uh, putting fear into people, otherwise we won't be able to implement those measures. And that is terrible. That is something that needs to be read, this paper, and people need to take knowledge of it. And then you would really, it would really open your eyes. Now, maybe oh, getting back to the state church again. Well, maybe, may I ask a question there? Maybe it would be a good thing for the church to remember Bonhoeffer and his attitude, because there were people 
in the church who opened their mouths and for 70 years they were celebrated as heroes. Where are the modern Bonhoeffers? Well, Martin Michaelis maybe. Luckily he didn't have to suffer the same fate as Bonhoeffer. Um, he's still doing uh, well enough, um, even though he had to suffer. Um, he lost um, functions because he contradicted this um, narrative. And he said, if as a pastor I'm asked to hold somebody's hand, I will go and do it. And he said, well, you can't implement these measures. Well, I uh, just was going to say that I spent 14 years in church administration, and I always say whether you're determined and controlled by money, and what, um, to what extent you acknowledge outside influences, for instance, because there are state uh, agreements, is always uh, the individual's decision. And I can't see that any of the churches can be forced by the state to do anything they don't want to do. Uh, the problem is that they don't have their own profile anymore, as we mentioned. Just let me give you one small example. Uh, there was this uh, threat announced by the minister president um, in Baden-Württemberg that uh, four weeks from now, uh, from now, you can only attend uh, church if you're vaccinated. And uh, a priest um, from Baden, uh, priest Brunner, um, initiated a um, petition that really went through the roof um, opposing this and it wasn't implemented. So we have uh, four bishops in Baden-Württemberg, two Catholic, two um, Protestant ones. If one of those bishops had uh, picked up the phone and asked, uh, called up our minister-president Kretschmer and said, well, just let me tell you, we're not going along with this, then that would have been enough. Nobody would have had to uh, start a petition. The churches still have that much influence, still, I have to say, have that influence in Baden-Württemberg, but at least they would have uh, to know themselves. The former um, uh, president of the um, Council of the Protestant Church said that uh, you have to be true to yourself, you have to be true to your message. Well, enormous really. Now what can we say? We'll keep monitoring further developments and hope that the church will contribute to um, the reconciliation of society and the reconciliation with the people who have um, burdened themselves with guilt and maybe they can reconcile themselves with themselves. And um, of course the churches have the different uh, communities um, that can maybe help to overcome cognitive dissonance. That's not an easy process, of course, and against this background I really hope that that there will be some movement developing there. Well, Mr. Shape, great that you should have explained it to us like this. Thank you very much. I think it was very important to think about this uh, more. Maybe that way we can reach uh, some um, theologian, some priest or um, pastor, and um, he might think maybe I can um, cause something in my community. 
Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the privilege of um, participating here, and I really think it's very important to exchange views. And um, we, my friends and I, um, hope that we uh, stick to our guns here, and we really want to uh, listen to anyone who wants to discuss with us. If you're interested in listening to us, uh, talking to us, you can find us on the internet. Um, that's not a problem. I think that's important. We need to uh, link up. We need to cooperate. That's one of your objectives to really uh, put the finger on uh, things at the right point so that uh, we cause the appropriate pain because sometimes as everybody knows uh, it needs to hurt before we can change absolutely it's a cathartic process and i think we'll create the links uh, for people who want to get into contact and want to ask questions and join up with other christians i think it's very important that we have this initiative and i'm happy to see you involved in it and uh, hoping for resonance. And uh, thank you very much. Well, you too. Contribution. Let's stay well, in contact. Thank you. We'll stay in contact. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And now I can welcome our next guest, a, a worldly topic, uh, matching in what you've mentioned, the phenomena, as you called it, uh, free floating viruses. The. Um, Picking up uh, from the plague air. that comes through the air, um, whatever they may come from. We have Doris Schröder with us. Are you with us? Yes, yes, I'm here. Hello, everybody. Oh, perfect. Yes, now we can see you too. <coughs> well, that's great. We had um, spoken on the phone in this context already. You looked more intensively into uh, all the uh, complications that uh, developed in the animal kingdom um, that have been developing there over the last decades as a researcher, basically. And it's really fascinating. A lot of things get together here. I um, keep sheep myself when I'm in contact with other farmers. And I can see that there is a lot of, well, how can we put it? There are uh, all sorts of requirements, legal requirements, um, um, health, healthy food, healthy animals, uh, keep restricting us uh, more and more. And there are interesting phenomena that you looked into in more detail. I'm curious to hear what you have to tell us. Yes, um, I'd be happy to share this. I have a little presentation that I prepared. So I can share my screen. I hope that works. <coughs> Here we go. Yes, yes, it works. Bird flu by schedule is what the presentation is called. And before I start, I'd like to um, make a little remark what I wondered about uh, over the last year, and that led me to look into this topic, really, this topic of animal pests, especially bird flu. What is the recipe for a new pandemic was my question. And uh, I came up to 
weak immune system and people nose sprays open schools and uh, a gene changed virus that's the kind of the condition i would say and uh, to get into the subject matter i'm doris schroeder i live in uh, mecklenburg vorpommern on the countryside since 2020 and uh, i'd like to start my presentation thanking my husband who has set up this presentation and my friend who is a biologist who helped me and uh, they uh, supported me strongly in going on with these things and i have an overview of what i'd like to talk about which is quite complex as a topic and i don't think it's possible to really go down all the details here that would need more people to do this and um, just to keep my red thread here i would like to ask you to ask questions at the end of the presentation so why am i into this i'm concerned um, i came from animal keeping we moved to the countryside we want to keep chicken and we wanted to do this as hobbyists and we wanted to keep the uh, chicken as good as possible and that gave put us into the situation that we were not allowed to keep uh, animals due to um, animal pests and uh, specifications and I started to look at the media from that and I tripped on this article in the uh, local newspaper which really kicked me up on how they handle the animals, how they handle the animal keepers, uh, why do veterinarians do what they do, how come they behave the way they behave. And I do see some parallels to the COVID measures. One example, for example, is uh, stabling, which is equivalent to lockdowns. It's uh, even worse that it is by law prohibited in most cases to heal animals. Uh, so if you have a positive test on uh, bird flu, and we saw in Corona pandemic or pandemic that uh, it was uh, people were not allowed to get therapies that worked so so they could get healthy again once they were sick the same applies for animals so what is bird flu actually according to the official places i have to say here um, as you see on the chart there's quite a few official institutions it's a pest an animal pest uh, caused by influenza A viruses from Asia and there's different subgroups and that is a very lethal uh, pest especially for chicken uh, and uh, geese but it also is uh, uh, takes place in a water flock 
and uh, in many places it is said that it is from um, uh, not only from uh, build, from migrating birds, but uh, also from uh, the things that you put in your stable and so on. However, there was no uh, causal relationship. I've asked many places um, and I never got any um, proof. They simply stated, the media repeated, and these viruses can mutate quite quickly. And the interesting point is that clinically, from the symptoms, it can't be differentiated um, from Newcastle disease, for example, or other diseases. And the FLI, the um, equivalent for the P, for the Paul Ehrlich Institute uh, for animals, so to say, is um, that it is said again and again that the viruses can mutate and they can uh, move from uh, birds to um, other mammals and finally to the human beings and that's the big devil on the wall and if this um, of the era influenza, bird flu, uh, if that can't be proven clinically, and I can't see a chicken which is doing bad, how can you? How can you prove it? And the point is that the um, Friedrich Löffler Institute, which is the federal institute in Germany to uh, rule over this, they only used PCR. There were other uh, methods before. Um, um, breeding viruses in the embryotic uh, chicken egg. Now it's only um, PCR tests and the clinical things, the clinical symptoms cannot be differentiated. Uh, where do they get the samples from? They go wild bird monitoring, but it's not only that, it's um, foxes and other animal which is hunted, they test as well, and the FLI is the final tester to see what it is. At the moment, they're testing a lot H5N1 as bird flu, and that said, antigen quick test could be done, but the FLI says this is not reliable. But as we know by now, amongst others from uh, Professor Ulrike Kennegara and Professor Eckler, the PCR test can't prove an infection. And the problem that I'm after is, um, in my inquiries, is how do you make sure that it is no other reasons? For example, the seals in Helgoland, the island um, in the German North Sea, for example. How can you make sure it's not a chemical poisoning that went on or things like that. I'm trying to find that out and what FLI wrote to me is that they can't say anything about the symptoms and I think that tells a long story. Biosafety measures is the non-word of the years 2022-2023 and following possible, possibly um, it is the same thing that we've seen in Corona for human beings and in COVID. Um, if you have a positive test in a stock, in a livestock, 
and or it is only assumed and the assumption is sufficient here to cull these animals, kill the animals, that's what happens and these are, um, these are the requirements. Uh, there has to be lockdown, they have to be culled, they have disinfection, they can't get into the stable and only after everything is okay it is released and they can put new animals in and um, start with their operation, op op operation again. So that happens immediately when something is found but there is areas around a three kilometer range, ten kilometer range and there are similar requirements, biosafety measures that everybody has to adhere, be they big commercial uh, stock keepers or a small hobbyist like we are. So uh, lockdown for the chicken is what we call it, uh, disinfection, prohibition of people non-involved um, uh, in the operation, you have to wear protective garments, no surface water, the birds can't have any contact from the outside, only tap water, you can't trade them. And I was shocked in that if there is the suspicion that you keep a, hair, a chicken in your bedroom, they can go in your uh, private rooms and search there. And uh, this was only done in the past when there was an officially outbreak, an official outbreak. Now it is new since 2021, November, Schleswig-Holstein started with it. Um, they have preventive um, biosafety measures and requirements that are issued. Baden-Württemberg um, also does this now in 2023. I'm following this up to find the backgrounds why they do this kind of thing. Out of nothingness, really. Uh, so biosafety measures uh, for these uh, for the hobby chicken keepers, for example, or poultry keepers in general, uh, is completely negative for the animals. Um, for a long time, over a month, they have to stay indoors. They are not allowed to go outside and um, they get bored, they're stressed, they start fighting, they get aggressive, they don't get sun, UV rays, uh, we know um, are disinfective, of course nothing happens there. They don't get vitamin D, um, which they can't create without sun, obviously, and all this story with the concentration of viruses inside, and it is very bad. We have goose as well, chicken and goose. The animals get sick out of this, uh, simply because the immune system is impaired, and we have to say that the industrially kept poultry, which is kept in these big uh, stables, we called it concentration camp for chicken in the past, they live like that for all their life and you can assume that they have a weak immune system anyway. That's a standard. And then we have the animal insurance, that's quite insurance, that's a mandatory insurance where they say that it's organized by the German state and uh, they say they are not an insurance but it's nothing different really because if you have an official outbreak 
and he kept to all the biosafety measures beforehand, then also preventive, then you can get a hope for a compensation, but only if you're a commercial keeper, really. For me, as a hobbyist, I'll probably never get a single cent out of that, but simply because I can't even fulfill all these biosecurity measures. Uh, the hens that I have, it's uh, Sweden flower chickens. Of course, they're much more expensive if you buy them um, compared to a mass production hen, which is only going to live for a couple of months anyway. So the value is completely different, and I'm never going to see that for sure. And still, I have to pay, maybe not much, but there's many small chicken keepers, and um, um, they get the money from us, from taxpayers, from EU tax money, and that's what goes to the commercial poultry keepers in this case. Uh, so, for example, if you have a turkey operation, they have a lot of energy consumption, and now if the customers can't pay it or want don't want to, then it's quite easy for an operation to say, look, here, we've got the virus, we have a suspicion that we have birds flu, and um, I would say if you test enough, you'll find it, surely, and then they can um, get their compensation. The animals are cold, they can reduce their energy consumption, and so that's a simple consideration, really. Um, there are a few legal aspects. I'm not a legal person, so I can't say much, really. These are the it's a selection of what I found. Uh, where this comes from and who uh, sets this forth. And the point is it's all designed and uh, bred on EU level. Around the federal Grundgesetz, uh, as we have in Germany, and that leads to the animal protection law, and then on the state level we have um, directives and new now there's a general um, declaration on the basis of um, of uh, order on on the general assumption really I have the animal protection act here as well for and I compared it with the infection protection act um, for humans um, so um, we see here that an agent in the infection um, act for human animals, so to say, is seen as a replicable agent, and in the Animal Protection Act it is enough if they find a part of an agent. So here it is legally um, given it's illegal given that we don't have to have um, active agent. And in section two, uh, in paragraph two, section eight, we see that even animals that are suspicious to be contagious, but you can't exclude it that they have picked up the agent. You can call them and kill them as you like if they are in the stock. And I have, besides being outraged, a number of questions concerning this. The culling, they call it um, animal um, 
uh, animal specific and art uh, type spe uh, specific uh, killing, which is gassing usually. Uh, it's completely against the well being of the animals. It says the goal of the uh, law in the first place was to take responsibility for the animal as a part of the co-creation. Nobody is allowed to uh, hurt or harm an animal without specific reasons. And uh, we have the rubber band uh, paragraphs in Germany to the lot. And I think it's quite clear what's going on here. And then I noticed that this biosecurity measures, uh, without any reason, restrict our fundamental rights. The um, Animal Protection Act says it's a uh, prescrip uh, prescription to um, have uh, privacy in your apartment, but that's not enough. Uh, it prescribes you what to wear when you go to the stable. It uh, prescribes you whether you can sell your eggs or trade your poultry. And um, also, it says that in the um, tailwind of the discussion here in March 2020, we have zoonotic influenza put into the Infection Protection Act. And here you may wonder why that would take place, why that took place. All right. Sorry about this glitch. I have to check where I was. I can't see the second screen now where I have the presentation, actually. Well, we can see it. We have the presentation here as well. Maybe production can show it. Uh, it seems to be back now. There it is. Well, now that is the large one. But I can see. No, here we are. It's uh, just the end of it. So it was a bit fast now. Okay, legal questions. Right, I shouldn't be playing around with my mouse. Sorry. We can go on. Sorry about that. You can see everything again, right? Good. Yes, yes, we can. It's a, it's a kind of preview mode. It's not the presentation mode where we can see the next chart as well, but it's okay. Okay, carry on. <coughs> All right, I thought you can see screen two. You can swap the screens at the top. Yes, swap there. There it is. Now you see the right thing, okay? Okay, I have it the wrong way on my screen, but sure, we can go on. 
Forschungsbild und unabhängige Wissenschaft geht, das, das war die nächste Frage. Research, nepotism and independent science, that was the next question um, that I always ran into. You find new um, research groups again with always the same scientists, so Mr. Drosten, Mr. Farrar, uh, um, and then Mr. Uh, uh, spoke about the um, uh, bird flu again yesterday, and then uh, someone from the FLE and Fabian Linda, who will probably uh, play a new role in the context of One Health in Greifswald, where he actually is uh, doing his doctor's thesis. Mr. Osterhaus is missing. Who is that? Mr. Osterhaus. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot more people. It's incredible. I have um, rabbit's hole here. That's um, just one rabbit's hole here. And I gave a few examples here of, well, if you go down that route, uh, you can't go out again. Also, the way they're interlinked and connected, if you just look at the uh, Free Fluffler Institute, you have these um, sponsorship uh, associations of the Free Fluffler Institute. They have this very same website's um, appearance, and then you'll find Mr. Loma, uh, that's the industrial uh, chickens again. It's the pharmaceutical industry that you can find there. But people of the Free Fluffler Institute. But um, the One Health uh, that was established in Greifswald with Mr. Lindertz as, how can I put it, as boss. And they um, cooperate with the uh, University of Greifswald. Um, and then uh, Mr. Drosten pops up again. So the national uh, research platform for zoonosis, etc. So there are many uh, areas where they um, are involved, and you keep bumping into the same people. And I was listening in earlier, uh, Dr. Vodak, that systemic corruption, really, that's the only way you can call it. I was wondering if we uh, look at all of these, uh, uh, this European Commission, etc., how they're organized. When we compare it to um, the definition of a mafia, uh, you'd probably realize that they are organized in the same way. I don't know what the difference is anymore. Maybe that's a bit heretical, but now um, that is the um, thought that popped into my mind. Well, there's another rabbit hole where I didn't find as much. Uh, it's a bit difficult to research that on the media. Um, but um, yesterday, um, Kofi um, said something about uh, this. Uh, it's an association who want to get rid of mass um, uh, breeding of animals. They want um, only um, compassion in farming. And they look at bird flu as well. What else is there, Dr. Petermann, um, from the Scientific Forum uh, on avian influenza um, that was 2021 i don't know if they're still around when i published my article in um, february i was pointed to a film on youtube by michael, uh, michael leitner from 2006 
where um, which is called H1N1 um, doesn't respond. And it's very interesting. I'm not the first one who looked at this. The FLI um, has already been <coughs> proven wrong by many people, and we still have the same development. So this hasn't uh, borne much fruit yet. Now, why I came up with this uh, notion that I had at the beginning, what's the um, recipe for a new pandemic? That's things such as a catastrophic contagion. This exercise from October 2022, I think um, you're aware of this, where they um, exercised a severe epidemic um, respiratory syndrome that was supposed to affect particularly children and young people. Then Bill Gates, he's always um, pronouncing themselves about uh, something, but that can also be used as a uh, uh, measure for where he has interest, where he's invested. Then in uh, February 2023, uh, uh, suddenly uh, the WHO also said something about this. Uh, press declaration on H5N1, press declaration by Tedros, and that uh, I perceived as the start of a campaign there. And a few days later, it was uh, made public um, that um, uh, some company is working on a, a, mass t a PCR test for H5N1 um, that was um, Todos Medical. And um, then, of course, the media jumped on the bandwagon and they just uh, distributed this. Um, the journalists oftentimes don't do their own research. They simply copy the news agencies and um, DPA and um, American press and whatever. And um, when they do uh, their own research, all they do is they contact the official authorities like FLI, etc. Now, a poultry vaccine is another topic. Um, there's been a, a poultry vaccine for a long time now, um, a so-called vaccine. I don't think that there's any of them that's uh, sterile, i.e. Uh, a vaccine that will prevent um, animals infecting each other. They're only vaccines that can soften the symptoms, reducing the symptoms. The problem in business is um, that there are some companies that do vaccinate and others don't because they argue, well, the problem is I can't see whether the animal is ill and I still export it and then I spread the disease that way. But further research is being done, particularly in France, um, in the EU, they're testing uh, for bird flu now. Um, uh, that's some um, news that I found in May of last year. I didn't hear any um, follow-up on that. <coughs> then human vaccines, very, very interesting here. Of course, you would think of mRNA human vaccines first and foremost, and that's what they're doing research into. GlaxoSmithKline or Moderna are doing research here. And the big idea now is to make a sample vaccine that only has to be adjusted for individual virus uh, uh, 
lines and then within a hundred days you can develop a new vaccine or well not a new um, vaccine but an, um, an effective vaccine that's the idea what i find much more dangerous right now is that there is a vaccine already there are older vaccines around but the one of astrazeneca is what i'm referring to now i think it's very dangerous it's uh, genetically manipulated with a uh, weakened virus which comes in the form of a nasal spray and which was licensed by EMA with a restricted uh, license uh, in back in 2016. And this is now to be uh, enabled for H5N1 um, for children and young people. Well, enable really means just to launch to market, uh, as far as I understand, without further tests, even though it has only been tested with, uh, with adults so far. And uh, the product uh, guidelines uh, say that this nasal spray, this vaccine, um, whatever it is, is actually contagious. And I think that is a big danger, particularly if it is um, used on uh, immunocompromised people. So much on the vaccines. And now what is all of this? It, to me, it's part and parcel of a bigger picture where people are to be alienated from nature. I think that's a process that has been going on for a long, long time. I've been observing that even before COVID, that uh, people are to be alienated from nature, be um, afraid of nature, made afraid of nature. It goes to abolishing old uh, breeds. They don't do it via bans. They do a lot via legal requirements. Um, there is a, um, an agenda to destroy agriculture globally. We can see that in the context of climate protection, etc. That all has the same thrust in my point of view. And this way you can force people to accept this laboratory uh, food, laboratory vegetables, laboratory meat, etc. So people become completely dependent. That is the risk that I see that this that we have the social control system like in china the pharmaceutical industry will be happy to have many more ill people and um, i would expect that if they continue in this vein that we will be faced with legal requirements that will make the life as we've known it impossible that is the big risk that i see and then i would like to thank my chickens who had to serve as photographic models here. And thank you very much for your attention and happy Easter. And if you have any questions, feel free, shoot away. Yes, incredible, incredible. First of all, thank, congratulations for these beautiful chickens Do you have. We had uh, Deutsche Langhahn and Abenteller Spitzhaube. Um, chicken, chicken really are great animals and once you've hold them on your arms and your arms it's a great sensation and i think it's notable the fear that uh, is to be sparked against anything natural so to say this fear is mongered all the time you can't go to the stable you get uh, fungi or bacteria whatever so how often did it really happen that people really caught bird flu or any other uh, bacteria from chicken over the last 10 years, 800 cases of bird flu. And um, we don't know whether it was really bird flu. 
Well, zoonoses um, occur when uh, someone who's immunocompromised has very close contact with um, the sources, and then you always have to look at uh, whether it's actually um, the actual disease or whether they look for other diseases as well. Um, it is irrelevant as a, a risk to humans. It was irrelevant back in 2005 when we had this scare and everybody was supposed to take Tamiflu and it continues to be irrelevant. But the thing is, if you look at it systemically, humans and chickens have been cohabitating for millennia in close contact. And if you go through Asia and you see how people handle uh, chickens, pigs, other animals, uh, sometimes cohabiting on um, in very close quarters. Um, like for instance, um, you have a house that is slightly raised off the ground underneath. The, the pigs um, do their go about their business. That uh, and then when needed, they're slaughtered. That's an important uh, source of food for people. Same in Africa. And everywhere, of course, these chickens um, get colds and they have all those viruses that play a role uh, for uh, chickens. They go through the, um, uh, uh, through the populations and um, it's very rare for a chicken to die of the flu um, or that it's passed into the egg. It's very, very ra rare for a chicken to die of this. What is sick, what's really disastrous is that people I'm uh, thinking of the gyms um, in the First World War uh, where, where people were uh, put with H1N1 and where the flu uh, spread so viciously and now the chickens and um, the turkeys and um, all poultry is squeezed so uh, closely together that's of course the best uh, breeding ground for any disease. There's no uh, social distancing for uh, the chickens. Well, formally they are in place, but it's laughable. And that's what's new in the way people and animals um, cohabitate. Um, this this uh, mass uh, production, factory farming. Well, I completely agree, and I mentioned Dr. Peter Petermann from uh, the scientific work, and he's a researcher who worked on this, and what is being said is that the migrating birds uh, bring this in and uh, commute this to uh, chicken and poultry. It's not true. It's simply the trade and the commerce and it's the mass animal keeping because you have tons of chicken and animals there who have a weak immune system and uh, it's again and again that the small hobby um, keepers are uh, spark fears. This is a document from uh, the local government telling me what I should do if I want to keep poultry. Um, and they say, for example, if 2% of the animals are sick, show um, signs of disease or I lose more than 2% in 24 hours. Well, just imagine if you have five chickens, what is 20%? A leg? And uh, 
I wonder whether the people who write this kind of thing and implement it, whether they have ever seen a normal animal or whether they just work with laboratory animals all their life and their sterile conditions and uh, disinfect their desk when they return to it. I wonder what these people are. How can they come up with such strange ideas? Well, legal experts in, in doubt. Well, thank you very much for this very uh, illustrating uh, presentation. It was interesting to see the networks that happen there at all levels. And I would like to tie into what Wolfgang just said, um, also in the uh, connection of your slides. Uh, the way I understand it, the zoonosis is irrelevant for people both in terms of spreading a disease and the uh, risk level involved. Well, with respect to possible pandemics or epidemics, I don't want to say that in individual cases people can pick this up. Of course, that may happen. Yeah, of course that happens. But the question is the zoonosis is often <coughs> painted as the big uh, scarecrow. But independ uh, independently of the um, transmissibility and uh, risk level involved, the question is whether it's a zoonosis can then be passed on from one human to another. And that isn't um, uh, proven. But even if it's it's uh, transmitted from animal to animal. Now, uh, what you showed here were the different institutions, and there were two or three in, uh, that have specialized in zoonoses. Uh, among them, um, Dr. Drosten is involved again. So the question now is, the question uh, arising, I don't know if you looked into this, do you know when these institutions were uh, founded? Because the zoonosis has been tissue, an issue since 2003 or so. Uh, yes, the turn of the century, more or less. Do you have any data whether this coincides or were they around longer? I'd have to look this up. Uh, the Institute in Grasswald was only established last year, and I have the impression that they say we have a big problem, dear government, we have to do something, you have to fund it, we are doing research, third party funds, and so on, and then they start with something new and do their research. Uh, there was Delta flu, for example, which was which expired last year, and so they came up with something new to continue the work and it's completely unclear and confused uh, what they come up with WHO monkeypox and whatever I it's not called monkeypox anymore they've changed the name um, or Marburg or whatever it's it's my impression is Riz it's a, a bad novel with thousands of lines and in the end they all join up in one goal and the one objective the point is what well, in, in my opinion, it is that we are not independent and self-determined anymore in our lives. Well, as you said, I think yeah. that's the point. That's um, what I see coming up, and they do that from all different angles: climate, health, animal health, destruction of agriculture, and so on. Well, independent life, free life—that has to do with our uh, providing our own food. Um, and I've uh, described the situation in Africa, but it's the same thing in uh, Europe. If I look at uh, regions in Europe where people aren't as rich, but they have a bit of uh, uh, land in, in rural areas, that's a very important uh, uh, source. Uh, the chickens, the eggs in rural regions everywhere. And you have the heap of compost where uh, the chickens um, 
do their business and you have worms in an ecosystem that is very healthy and which is self-regulating and it's not known that any uh, plagues have emanated from this over the last 10,000 years by our cooperation with uh, uh, chickens. Well, the plague uh, transmitted by the uh, rats or the, the rats' fleas, that happened, yes, but they're not normally kept as animals, um, uh, as uh, domestic animals. Well, chickens do have fleas, as I um, had to um, experience myself, and they also uh, move on to cats, but uh, luckily there's no chicken flea plague, and I wouldn't know what other vectors can play a role there. I can't imagine that something new simply comes up, simply because Dr. Drosten is looking at this topic right now. If it happens, then it certainly is, again, another narrative that somebody came up with uh, designed to make people afraid again. Well, I think it's probable. It looks like the pre-run-up to Corona, there's a kind of white noise image in the media, and then they pull it out of the box. And I do think that coronavirus was mutated, the Wuhan whatever um, was released. I think it was either released from a laboratory, something, and I may well imagine I think Professor Ukurike Kamasara said these viruses are easy to mutate and uh, they will do this kind of thing. I could well imagine that they'll do that. But one thing that we'll definitely have, and uh, I got so called uh, raw data, um, which is very strange. And I checked what they tested on, it's the PCR test, and I got the CT values, and in the methods it says anything below 36 cycles is contagious, and anything which is above isn't. Uh, 36 is quite a high level, isn't it? Uh, yes. And so you do wonder what is going on here in this kind of test pandemics. Um, well, that's what we discussed earlier when we were talking about the standards that are established, the standard values, that may be FAO who do it, maybe a different uh, authority, everything doesn't have to be done by the WHO, other authorities can do that, that are also very much influenced by industry in their decisions. So the uh, supporting well, associations and so on. You mentioned this nasal spray. You talked about that nose spray, and uh, um, we've heard this. It's ten million dollars that were invested by the Department of Defense in the U.S. to an institution uh, to develop a nasal spray against influenza, two types of influenza, one of it being the bird flu, the bird flu virus, uh, H5N1, and um, H7N1 and 9 and the two are the nose sprays as an RNA nose spray. So that means it's sprayed into the nose and in the tissue 
in the mucous cells, it produces the antigenes. And uh, if the Department of Defense, Defense does this, you wonder, you wonder why? How are they involved in this? Why are they interested? It's very very strange the Bundeswehr doing this or the Ministry of Defense develops a nasal spray for children what's going on that's a very wide concept of, of defense but a uh, question of clarification um, I uh, read your slide such that this nasal spray was made only for children but is tested in adults is that right um, that it's only conceived for children because the question is why not for adults because they can be just as affected well that's uh, well it's the dots that i connected in the first place and uh, so it's a nasal spray which is actually intended for seasonal influenza 2016 that's where it was approved with restriction by the ema for adults, for adults, and of course they did the clinical tests and so on for, with adults. The interesting thing is uh, you can take this from the specifications, it's quite open there to read up, and then now they said, well, this is um, the new way we'll use the vaccine or the effective part as it is and just change the attenuated virus and replace that and then we can use it so that's uh, they're called mock-up mock vaccines really yeah or a platform vaccine or sample i've read a number of terms and now it's intended for children all of a sudden by the way, uh, with uh, patent regulations, there's an interesting story. The industry negotiated for a long time over the patent term. And uh, they said, if we make um, a patent for adults or a medication for adults, we'll have a patent for 10 or 15 years, whatever. And if we perform the studies in children as well, the patent will be extended by another five years. So such interests also come in place, so they plan when they uh, apply for approval and then they get a patent extension. So that's uh, strategic economic considerations. Yes, yes, and uh, there are people who say no problem where I wonder, well, what I've said, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, Moderna, what you found out in the US is they don't invest in this kind of thing if they don't expect a profit afterwards. So I do think they see this as a possible op option to pull this out of the hat. Yes, while they don't rely on doctors anymore to inject this, uh, but they uh, try to influence politicians so that they can buy on uh, a large scale. Whether it's actually injected or not doesn't matter to them um, as long as they get the money. What, what I think uh, fascinating is a double standard here, the multi-pronged approach, if you want to call it that, uh, that you are going along the uh, virus thing, the cyanosis and problems for the human beings, and at the same time, um, we know from the animals there is treatment or vaccines, vaccinations that uh, stop uh, um, transmissions from one animal to the next and uh, 
sheds it to others. So um, they're doing something in this stock, in the livestock. And on the other side, the point is about um, stopping people from um, producing their own produce. Um, we've had the same thing here, really. We don't have chicken. Uh, we don't have them at the moment. But how do you want to put them all into a stable? It's not easy to do, even if you have one, if you, especially if you want to have a couple of more because you want to trade them in your village or so on with the eggs, which are much, much better than the supermarket eggs. I was flashed in the beginning how different the yellow part is and how better they taste. And uh, that's not possible. And um, I think it's very um, threatened here. I'm interested in the old uh, breeds um, that stay outside. The same applies for our sheep. They are outdoors all year. They get their lambs there in the fields. And they don't have the problem which these industrial animals have. This hybrid uh, chicken with that big breast uh, or a chicken that can't walk because it's uh, if it doesn't have a support. And these old breeds are, of course, always dependent on the commitment of individual keepers. Uh, there's only a few, for example, Forvac chicken is only um, very few that are left. And uh, if they have this kind of restriction and requirements that they can't fulfill and uh, um, kind of have to wear whole body protective garment to see their chicken. They can't do that. That's a problem. I've mentioned this here before, that since 2014, um, we have a prohibition that we can't export the old races into other countries um, due to scrapey um, uh, for breeding. But I can export them for slaughtering and giving them as food to the people. So we may have this infected animal. I give it outside for eating and not for breeding. So um, that means there is a potential extension of these old races and species, species um, because they are trapped in individual islands. And uh, the only problem that we have here, there's been protests on the associations. The thing is really to say these old races are not wanted anymore, despite all biodiversity activity that we see in politics. Times. Well, concerning the old races, the old breeds, with this um, culling uh, requirement, um, well, there are uh, some exceptions to um, the ban on healing. Uh, so, for instance, in a, a zoo in Germany, uh, they found something with uh, pelicans and they said, okay, it's a rare race or. Um, um, then they you can apply for an exemption and in the case of the zoo they didn't uh, call the pelicans because they found okay there's not a big uh, stock of pelicans so where's the plague here Oh, it's, it's contagious and it's not contagious anymore after two weeks so you just lock that one bird up it's quite easy to lock up some birds yes and the next thing is that the old uh, races with uh, chickens, I know, um, uh, so there are old uh, chicken races. If you uh, breed those, then um, you can apply uh, for an exemption from the culling um, requirement. 
Now, how um, they handle these um, applications, I can't tell you. But the uh, legal requirements are so crazy. There's two percent rule, for instance, and um, you always have this um, threat that uh, oh, uh, oh God, oh God, the um, outbreaks are moving closer. So the FLI has this information system. You can look at it, which I do, and then you can see. Okay, um, it's moved this far now. Oh my God, oh God, uh, what's ha happening to my chickens now? So what we did, we have a cock and a hen so far. And we've started uh, building a, a voliere, and we have geese as well. And chickens and geese are difficult uh, to keep in the same place. Um, and we're um, planning to build a huge uh, voliere, um, a huge aviary, um, because we just don't want to have the situation where they have to stay inside of the stable because here in the countryside they're outdoors all day they only go back in at night to sleep otherwise they're never in the stable they're outside <laughs> and they ruin the garden well I don't, they don't put the eggs in the in the hedge but in the stable yeah they lay them in the uh, stable i had this one uh, chicken that always went some other place to lay um, its eggs and we thought oh why doesn't she uh, lay any eggs and then we found an old whole nest that i showed on one image but normally they lay their eggs in uh, the stable because it's comfortable it's uh, uh, padded with hay etc so we look uh, after our chickens so they're doing well uh, we give them the right um, food. They don't have um, any fleas. They don't have any mites either. Um, we feed them um, a special grain from a, a mill in Schleswig-Holstein. They add herbs, and um, that can help them very much. Uh, for instance, lemongrass or oregano um, or um, all sorts of herbs that you can add uh, to keep your chickens healthy. I have a question on the animal insurance that seems to be important, especially for mass animal keeping. If I imagine you have a couple of ten thousands of chickens in a big hall and the incubation time is maybe five days and the duration of the infection, infection contagiousness, so all together, if I add it up, why can't you simply uh, then lock such a stable, one stable, why do you have to kill the, the, um, the animals? Because uh, there's a ban on healing, there is actually a legal ban on healing. Yeah, but if I test one positively, I can check and wait to see if it gets sick or not. It's not sure that well, it will. My understanding is that in these big stables, they only notice if an animal is ill when it's nearly dead. That's difficult, uh, different with our animals, of course. My animals all have names. I know them individually. And I see immediately if one of them doesn't feel well. In these big stables, they have umpteen thousand um, chickens or turkeys and they'll only notice usually when an animal can't go uh, to feed or drink anymore um, and they're nearly half dead by the time they realize that or even dead 
And then there's the uh, official animal, um, uh, official vets who have to handle a, a bureaucracy and uh, the stable owners have to uh, report if they have so and so many um, animals that die and then it's checked um, and tested and then it's over. It would be sufficient, legally sufficient if um, a, a pool of chickens is tested. If not a single animal has a symptom and the test is positive, they're all culled. We had, I think last year even, they uh, culled um, pools of um, poultry where the veterinary office um, su uh, supposed that there was um, bird flu uh, among them and they culled the animals and then tested them and they found no April fool there was no uh, avian flu but you can't uh, resuscitate them but they do get a compensation from that insurance how high is that do you know compared to the sales value for example I would have to look into it I don't have the figures here uh, I can only say that for hobby keepers is pointless for the others well, they won't grow rich, but they can certainly reduce their costs there. And these insurance companies are um, financed by the uh, lender, by the uh, states in Germany. They used to be supported also by uh, the EU. And I have um, uh, just a few chickens and uh, geese that pay five euro a year, so it doesn't kill you. But uh, all these small contributors um, contribute a lot of money altogether, of course. So I just wanted to know, I inquired, how many, um, uh, how much money was dispersed to private keepers? And I never got the answer. I got all sorts of information. I never got that answer. I was interested in that, of course. But we have to assume that private uh, individuals won't get a lot. Well, it has to be laid out in the statues how much they get per animal, isn't it? Well, that's possible, but I don't have the figures at the uh, tip of my tongue now. Uh, I think I also got the figures, but I wouldn't know them um, by heart. I would have to look it up. It says uh, someplace, but the question is, do you get any compo in the first place? Well, that's of course subject to conditions and so on. I know it's difficult to get money and you get little. So if you've got valuable stock, uh, it's not not really worth it. So if I buy a little chicken for a couple of cents because I buy 10,000, that may well pay off. But if I buy individual animals with... Uh, um, which costs more. It's not worth it, usually. Well, a hen uh, with a Swedish uh, hoon, for instance, you pay 30 to 40 euro for a single hen. That's just a hobby. Well, you can, of course, breed them, um, obviously. But I would uh, say that um, you look after the animals and that's expensive maybe everybody doesn't um, look after their animals as much as i do uh, giving them expensive food and whatever there's all sorts of levels here of uh, price levels but i think that uh, the cost that uh, factory farming works um, that's um, if you get compo for that um, you can't compensate a private owner with that level and that is why uh, Sleg Holstein did um, special legislation for 
uh, private individuals. Most of the uh, legislation, all those uh, decrees, they're really designed for a commercial um, animal keeping. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, the hobby owners, um, hobby keepers, uh, should abide by the same laws. Um, so I know that uh, sometimes, of course, uh, chickens fly over a fence and just um, run about. This just happens. And again, it is uh, a legal person's birth, apparently. Um, this is really nothing else than administration acts for the masses, really. And the question, of course, is whether it is actually um, claimable. It's a massive attack to the fundamental rights and the animal rights, which don't have basic rights. But uh, the question is whether this is actually admissible. And my question would be, not expecting much, but one could try, um, also looking at the aspect that you've mentioned, uh, the biosafety measures, um, that's, it's a horrible word as such, um, uh, um, the uh, ban on healing and the mandate on killing, that's perverted, isn't it? And you said that partly without symptoms, uh, there's no requirement to take these measures. Uh, causalities are not dr drawn, only correlations, and um, you say that the PCR test is partly not applied, it's only assumptions that they base the decisions on. So that's arbitrariness, really, and um, that should be looked at from a legal perspective. Um, is there any fight back? Not that I would have big hope, but um, that would be something considerable, wouldn't it? Well, it says in this Animal Health Act, it uh, uh, says that um, animals that are infected, um, animals that are suspected of um, in being infected or infectious animals, so testing for the pathogen, etc. But as I said, it has happened that even upon the mere assumption that there might be a um, a, a disease and an outbreak of an epidemic. Um, animals were culled, and I don't know if they got composition, uh, uh, compensation for that. It was something that really um, scared me. It's unbelievable how they handle, how they deal with people. I don't know if anybody has tried to uh, defend themselves, and I spoke to my husband. If we have this, if we get an order uh, to call, we will defend ourselves. I don't know if there's a um, legal um, uh, cost insurance that would kick in there. And um, the problem is, even if you uh, complain, it doesn't have a, um, a stay. It doesn't mean that there's a stay order. Um, so you still have to call the animals. So um, I heard from a, another uh, friend who keeps poultry. Somebody must have been on the radio there who said, yeah, what? Uh, you don't um, kill the pelicans in the zoo, but you kill our um, animals because they um, uh, attended a uh, an exhibition of race chickens in Berlin, and um, um, they really killed a lot of chickens. And one uh, owner must have called in a radio. Well, if they come around to my um, farm, I'll just. Um, chase them off with a gun. 
And um, I uh, really always look at what FLI uh, comes up with, with this epidemic um, information. This, there seems to be a lull up here in the north, and that's interesting because we have masses of swans and um, seagulls here. Uh, I went to Rostock to the dentist today, seagulls. We have cranes uh, left, right, and center on the fields. Not only now, so where are all those dead animals? Well, the pigeons, that's interesting. I read up about this. Um, apparently, uh, the pigeons don't play a role at all with bird flu. I found that quite um, noteworthy, and I was wondering, uh, is it uh, to do with the fact that the pigeon is not um, a farm animal that you could actually uh, benefit from? Nobody eats a pigeon. And FLI says, and that might be true for factory farming, um, they say that the big risk are uh, chickens and uh, turkey, and um, they claim that uh, waterfowl don't have the big problem with bird flu. And I wonder, yes, birds are different, all right, but birds are birds. Why does some bird have no problem with it and the others do, um, even with the species? Well, if it can uh, catch a pelican, it is uh, not logic why a duck doesn't catch it. And that's well, uh, they have the duck included, yes, and they have birds of prey. Uh, what do they call this? Uh, fowl? I don't know. I don't know what they call it. Um, um, birds of prey. So they test them as well, the big birds of prey, and they say, okay, um, uh, a lot of highly pathogenic um, swans, for instance, in Hamburg, um, the swans on the Ulster River, they do a lot there as well. Um, so they test a lot, but all it is is a test. Well, just uh, to understand it, as I have been working with this topic a lot, it's interesting that sometimes we see this in the media, as you've just mentioned. Um, a pest came up, um, swine flu, well, swines don't fly, uh, but uh, it's a scenario that is um, painted on the wall, and that can be something like you've just said, it's just an assumption, and then they cull them all, and then it wasn't anything, but the radio presents it as the big uh, plague everywhere in Lower Saxony. Exactly. Exactly. On the one hand, uh, there was always a lot of dispute with uh, FLI um, because they always claimed that it can be uh, spread by migratory birds. They weren't able to prove it. Um, they said, okay, uh, you uh, go to the chickens with contaminated clothes and that's where they get infected. You only need a few viruses, etc. The uh, fact is, they can't prove it. Uh, to this day, I uh, sent an inquiry to FLI and I said, well, dear FLI, please send me all the uh, evidence where you can show clearly that this is what happened. And then they said, oh, there's too much, 500 euro is what we need, too many cases, this, that, and the other. Um, couldn't I limit uh, this, restrict it a bit? And I said, okay, uh, please find a single case where you can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, or where it has been proven uh, without the shadow of a, uh, uh, sh a shadow of a doubt, or causally proven that 
what the FLI and media and the politicians always keep claiming. Um, and then they sent me a case uh, which is uh, public. I made it all uh, public, all my inquiries, so you can read it up. They actually sent me a case from 2014. I believe that was a case that was very well documented and investigated, but it was still only a correlation, not a causality. And I said, well, actually, people, I wanted to have a, a case of causality, and it says in the conclusion of this case that it is assumed and that it is likely um, to have this uh, spread here. And they wanted to uh, sell that as causality to me. And I wrote back to them and said, OK, look, this is the definition of causality. That is the definition of correlation. You can look it up in Wikipedia. What you sent to me is a correlation. And I really couldn't um, hold back. I try to be factual usually. But I said, after what uh, FLI uh, offers me, um, I have to assume that you don't know the difference between causality and correlation. It's not the scientists to do it. It's the PR department. Yeah, but um, well, what was that? Um, yeah, but this assumption is just a correlation. I couldn't stop myself to uh, write that to them. They have no proof, no causal evidence. And well, uh, all this evidence, what do they show actually? What are they proving? I am actually, um, we know that PCR tests don't, aren't proof of anything really. Have you excluded that um, it was intoxication um, or that there were um, prior uh, diseases? That is a different disease. So I'm still looking. I don't want to claim that it's one way or the other, but um, the assumption is, no, they never looked into it. And they say, oh, yes, we had a positive test for Heligoland, for instance. That's what I'm working on. That's uh, what the upshot is. <coughs> Well, I think it's quite shocking, and I, I really get uh, irritated when I have this uh, senseless killing and uh, harming of animals. We've seen this harm done to humans during COVID. Um, all the fear, all the people who died due to maltreatment, mistreatment. Uh, now it's going on with animals. The next story is coming up. That's pure madness. It's too bad. It's too bad. It started before this, and um, I um, tried to um, ask the pertinent questions, legal questions. Now, what if you have a contradiction between the definition in the um, Infections Protection Act and the Animal Health Act. Or what if the Animal Health Act contradicts the um, Animal Protection Act? Now, what applies legally? Would they actually have to get active uh, independently? Uh, or do you, what do we have to do um, to um, get things moving here? I don't know uh, whether you're shocked that the zoonotic influenza has been written into uh, item uh, paragraph 6 of the Infection uh, Protection Act. Well, what they put in the uh, um, laws, it depends on what the lobbyists tell them to put in. For decades, we've just looked into influenza because that was the only uh, disease and that we would have a vaccine for and that's why this was focused on and now <coughs> after Robert Koch Institute uh, 
until April 2020 did not uh, care for coronavirus. It's not even look if they were there or around. Now, as they do their business with that, now they have a whole range of rules in the Infection Protection Act. That's lobby control, that's all. Yeah, but you have to ask yourself, why, to what end? And that takes me to the point where I can actually imagine that the next pandemic will be an avian flu. And then uh, we were thinking, oh, maybe during the cold uh, period of the year. And they say, no, 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 for the last two years that the uh, bird flu um, virus stays in Germany um, against all expectations during the summer. Um, and then I wonder, well, where does it come from, from Cambodia, Asia? It's warm there. so. I um, paid a bit of attention in geography in school, um, so that's what it's there like. It's hot. Well, the excrements of the birds, uh, the virus uh, only uh, lives for twenty uh, for a couple of hours, if it's twenty degrees, and uh, only uh, twenty-four hours or more hours when it's cold. Yeah, because they say that it is actually adapting to the uh, heat here. Um, I think that's um, uh, something that doesn't make sense. They get these po uh, false positive responses now um, when they test it. It looks very much like COVID. Yeah. Well, the question is whether it'll pack up, pick up or not. Uh, maybe it'll just run dry like the monkeypox issue did. And I think it's very important to look at this and uh, see that with a certain calm uh, in animals, I think it's very important that we have uh, education here, that there was uh, somebody who phoned into the radio station asking what's going on here with two different types of approaches. There should be much, much more of these people who just uh, call these things out. These machinations that we offer, uh, observe now, they don't have a direct impact on human health, but indirectly because these machinations are designed to monopolize food production. And uh, we can see the discussion around artificial uh, meats. Uh, these are all measures to make life hard on uh, farmers, um, um, to make uh, all sorts of things, to destroy all sorts of things with uh, certain requirements, legal requirements. It all boils down to um, um, the big um, companies buying up everything, like Gates bought up fish farms, so they basically make it illegal for um, people to uh, produce their own food, which has been the case for thousands of years. They make it illegal so they can make people dependent and control them, uh, control how they earn their money. And this is disastrous for the environment, disastrous for health. This is why this discussion is health relevant, not because any viruses are dangerous for people, because uh, investors are dangerous for people. Yes, well, we'll have to keep the topic up going. Thank you, Ms. Schroeder, for giving us this beautiful overview with uh, all your chickens and so on. Very good. And uh, <clears throat> we'll keep it up. And if you find anything new 
in terms of results, please tell us. And um, apart from that, I um, wish you all the best for your uh, Swedish flower chickens and uh, for all the other breeds that we will be able to keep up a solid and healthy base. You have to tell me about the trick that um, uh, the chickens don't catch fleas. Do you, do you have chicken as well? Well, I had ch uh, chickens, well, and um, chicken, I'm playing chicken, um, with the idea of, of getting them again. Or pelicans, yeah. maybe. The beautiful animals. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I hope that the audience can take up an inspiration, speak up and fight back if they want to attack your flock. Well, I always call it the yeah, chicken herd. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, let me welcome our last guest for today, Susanne Fournier. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Good. Hello. Good afternoon. Hello. From Bavaria to Berlin, right? Life and in color. We are all in Berlin. And uh, you have brought in some very interesting experience. Uh, we've talked before. You operate a care home. And the residents, um, I think it's very notable that you brought them through the crisis quite well through the corona and the measure crisis really so maybe you could just um, present your project and i'm interested to hear your experience well yes those uh, were adventurous experiences really uh, you really can talk about this i couldn't have ex imagined this in um, our country and particularly not in um, the uh, caring for old uh, people because it's always about a quality of life we can't extend people's lives but if somebody's old and we have to say about 25 percent of our residents are palliative so these are people um, who arrive late in a nursing home and to speak of saving them or of um, foregoing things that's inhuman uh, in my experience, um, I've been um, a freelancer since uh, for 28 years now, and uh, this experience really uh, frightened me, um, showing me what is possible and who's come up with all that because it was planned in a way where you really have to say they didn't leave anything out. So much money was paid out here and a lot of um, credibility sometimes that uh, I found it difficult to understand uh, when it started in 2020 um, in the spring when it started with the SARS-CoV-2 virus we were thinking oh what's coming down the line here I was a bit um, at a loss, first of all, it was uh, called harmless, and then the media preparation um, that put the fear into you, and um, the way my mother 
raised me. She always said, well, if you're afraid of something, you have to face that fear. And that's what I did. There are many things that you learn from your parents. And um, my mother really supported me uh, during this period. Up until 2020, we did not have an outbreak in our uh, institution, but by then we already had two uh, reports uh, filed to the police uh, for violating the mask mandate. So we, uh, the first delivery we got was 25 masks per week. No masks were available, and the government made 25 masks available to us. And so we got together as a team thinking about what are we going to do now and we said okay we'll keep them in storage it doesn't make sense now to use them now it really what are you going to do with 25 masks now there's no good anyway so we have to have um, crisis management now we have to do the important things and the masks now we'll just keep them in storage and uh, for acute cases in the summer we thought okay coronaviruses are mostly active in wintertime. I looked into it, of course, and I found, okay, let's uh, take it easy in the summer, uh, keep social distance and all that sort of thing. So I think we went through the summer quite well. Our residents, which seemed completely absurd to, to provide masks to them, and I'm proud that always in coordination in, in uh, after discussion with the residents and their relatives we um, didn't impose the mask mandates um, because we felt it was absurd we have some uh, people with dementia not severe dementia but um, um, residents who couldn't handle the masks then we have residents who have uh, cramp seizures if they get into if they get stressed i can't force them to wear the masks and we can't uh, monitor them all the time we don't have one-to-one -one, uh, nursing here um, people spend half an hour 45 minutes uh, alone in their rooms well then they can't get infected either yeah but that's the way it was we have residents who aren't used well they they um, sometimes you know when they come into the nursing home they spent a lot of time alone um, before that so they aren't used to having people around them so they're not too appreciative of um, being with other people they like to retreat to their room so we don't force it down people's gullets um, we try to involve them but uh, some uh, people already uh, live alone at home, um, have contact only with their relatives, which is then quite intensive, and they like to retreat. That's their thing. And my option always is everyone, uh, well, each to their own. I don't need to uh, force some entertainment down uh, an 80-year-old's gullet. Well, you may laugh about this or chuckle, but sometimes we are um, asked to do this. Even previously, um, in quality management or during the audits, uh, um, that wasn't necessarily taken into consideration. 
as always, do good and talk about it and bring them all together, nobody, no matter whether people want to or not. So uh, do you have to have uh, certificates for your uh, nursing quality and do um, uh, such things as entertaining, etc., play a role there? Yes, of course. We are audited uh, regularly by the medical service of the uh, um, health insurance companies and or the nursing um, insurance uh, companies, and it always depends on the people who perform the audit. There are different social competencies uh, there that we uh, need to deal with there. But yeah, uh, be that as it may. Getting back to the topic. There was an outbreak in our region, and that was one of the first ones uh, that was also uh, used, um, taken up by the media very uh, heavily. So I think it was a large home with more than 100 residents, and a staff member died there as well. And that was, of course, a situation that spread a lot of fear. We don't know if he died of um, the measures, but he did die, um, and he tested positive. So I had to, of course, uh, discuss this with the residents, the staff, the relatives. It wasn't always easy, but I think we managed well enough. Well, I find it great that you managed to inform people like that and uh, allow them to develop this um, notion that it's an option that you don't have to go along with all those uh, measures because many of uh, those nursing homes went way beyond um, the call of duty there. Well, once we had the masks as nursing uh, staff, we did wear the masks during the winter. We had to test ourselves as well um, and the residents, and we were supposed to test the uh, relatives as well. And that wouldn't have been possible in my small home now. Uh, did you also have um, staff who were uh, able to work, uh, tested positive, and you had to send them home? Well, we'll get to that later on. We had an outbreak, so during the entire uh, year, we didn't have any problems at all. In November of 2020, we had the first corona outbreak. And that was quite sobering for me. We had tests, and they that means the whole home is tested, everybody. And uh, three-quarters of residents were positive. And then, of course, you're taken aback by that. And I was just in the process of calling around all the relatives, telling them in personal conversations about this when the press called me up. Now I wonder, how did the press know before the relatives knew? How did the press know that we had an outbreak? So the um, health office must have leaked that. And at the time, Numerous homes were positive, uh, had positive cases in, in our region. And then it started uh, with the testing twice a week. And then, of course, what happened was 
that uh, many of the staff were positive, tested positive, sometimes without any symptoms, and who then had to quarantine. We uh, would have had to uh, make a special application, submit a special application that you absolutely need them, and that would have had to be approved by the health office. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's an incredible bureaucratic um, process, and I would have liked to have it uh, much more streamlined, but it wasn't um, approved. Nobody who had tested positive without symptoms was allowed to come back to work. Now, many people may not know in a nursing home we have a um, staffing requirement based on the level of uh, nursing required by um, the residents. Now imagine, uh, except for two um, residents who had positive tests, everybody had flu symptoms, um, some more, some less. Just like a normal flu wave, actually. But it uh, was an extra effort because everybody had to stick to their rooms. We had less staff available. And it was really difficult to uh, care for people appropriately. And it was really the worst challenge of my professional career. And I wouldn't want to go through this again. It was horrible. And when I spoke to uh, the physician at the health office, and I asked him, like, do you have a pool? Because we've known this since the beginning of 2021. Do you have a pool of staff members that we can fall back on? Uh, nothing happened there. It's not like this came out of the blue. We knew that it would affect every home sooner or later, but there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And as I said, like, how, when I asked him, how do you imagine, how am I going to uh, provide the care that is now a bigger effort if people are... Um, old, uh, they can't necessarily eat independently anymore, eat themselves, drink themselves. Now, how are we going to uh, uh, hack this? And uh, the physician from the health office said, quite straightforwardly, that's not my problem. And that's when I realized it's not about health, because if so many people were infected in my home, then it wouldn't have been a problem either, uh, because nobody can get infected twice. So, in our um, line of business, you've always gone to work with light flu symptoms. That was never a problem, on the contrary. It was always normal because there's always a shortage of staff. And it, it uh, pardon? It's a measure of herd immunization. Of course, of course. If old people never get into contact with viruses, if they don't have regular contact with viruses, old people too, they uh, fail out of the habits, and it's something that the immune system can forget about this, and that's a problem. If you haven't trained your immune system for a long time, there's a long uh, break, and then the viruses arrive, and if it's um, something that it's not familiar with, then it's much more difficult for the immune system. That's why regular contact with children, with mothers of children, who work with you as staff, they always, this contact ensures uh, immunization that you normally would survive, no problem. Yeah, that was my view as well, and 
imagine uh, this situation. There were no differential diagnoses. That's the one thing. So I had one staff member who um, had a fever, uh, no flu symptoms, but fever, and uh, which was due to other things. Well, one uh, resident had a uh, bladder in infection uh, where the urine showed this already, had flakes already, and it was a discussion of a week with the um, um, with the physician uh, to get antibiotics. It took a week. Now, as I speak about it, it really gets at me again. It was a really difficult time, 12-hour days for us. We were thinking, what are we going to do? Um, with uh, feeding um, uh, people, sometimes that takes half an hour in order to treat people well. We ordered infusions. We can only give subcutaneous uh, infusions, so we did that um, as an addition 500 mils per day. And the rest, we just tried to do our job properly, but it was very, very difficult, and it was uh, very nerve-wracking. The frequency of hospital admissions um, uh, from your institution, did you have to send more people to hospital than usually? We had to send one patient to hospital in that period. The others wouldn't have wanted to go. We uh, really were able to uh, care for everybody very well. Uh, three or four uh, people died officially of COVID. And that means that anybody who passes within 28 days after an infection are, uh, is considered a COVID victim. So people who had recovered already and then died for other reasons because they were just so old or because they had terminal cancer or whatever, four of them, I think, um, and who required this to handle it this way? The health office? No, Robert Koch Institute. The health office doesn't do anything without Robert Koch Institute. You can ask, uh, make an official inquiry, um, and it will be passed on to the uh, Bavarian Ministry of Health, and that will give you a link um, pointing you to RKA. Whether it has anything to do with your question doesn't matter at all. Uh, can you tell us about um, uh, with the uh, injections? Did you have uh, vaccination teams come in? Well, we have uh, we had one patient who we sent to hospital. I would like to uh, finish saying that, not because he wanted to. It was a diabetic um, who needed to get uh, insulin. He didn't really have any pulmonary problems at all, but we couldn't dedicate enough time to him. He had severe blood sugar uh, fluctuations. We didn't have the staff to um, care for him. And that was the reason uh, why we said if he um, gets out of um, range, then uh, we can't um, monitor that and um, we can't care of him um, well enough.
So what surprised me was he was taken to hospital, was immediately ventilated, and he survived for another week and a half, and then passed. Exactly, exactly. How old was he? He was around 70 years old. He had severe uh, diseases, um, uh, pre, uh, prior conditions, but the, the, the blood sugar and the uh, temperature development, um, but he didn't have any uh, pulmonary problems from our point of view. Oh, well, they don't yeah. normally uh, ventilate um, uh, for, for diabetes. Well, may, may I ask, um, so you don't have to go back later, you said November 2020 was the first or only outbreak, is that true? No, I had two, two, we speak about this later. In 21, uh, we had none, okay. one in okay. 20. Okay, so as you use the word outbreak, which is used a lot of times in the media, um, the image seems to be the virus spreads all around and kills everybody who doesn't get up the tree or behind their mask in time. Uh, my question would be, as I remember properly, Autumn 2020, when the program was ramped up again in the media, you could set your clock to it. It was like a due date, November 2020, it started all again after it was all kept level. And I think that is when the quick tests were implemented. And my question is, does that mean that you started to test at that point in time or did you test before and uh, the test started to be positive or what or, or uh, what was the thing no 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 they, they were um, before that and you tested with the same frequency before as well can't really remember whether we had the tests already no i don't think we did i think i don't know it started in October when it was uh, directed that it should be done in the homes and the staff should be tested regularly as well. That was a directive or a recommendation from Robert Koch Institute. And from then on, people were sent to quarantine. So outbreak and, and the order to test coincided, kind of, you can say. Yes, and it was with a harmless uh, flu with somebody and then it started with a doctor who insisted that we had to test everyone for Corona and uh, things picked up on that uh, and uh, we had the outbreak. The outbreak, yes, <coughs> but you, you said that uh, flu symptoms weren't unusual in prior years, both among staff and residents, and that in the context of this outbreak now, I'll, I'll put it in inverted commas now, outbreak. Yes, and it was given the importance due to the high testing. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. <clears throat> Even if, yeah, we, we had many people who only got the little symptoms for three days and then they were sick. Uh, well, okay, and then they had to stay in their room for two weeks. So outbreak basically uh, means a person with um, flu symptoms uh, tested positive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we didn't see the quote-unquote in your word outbreak. Okay, I'll add that. And uh, um, 
it was very, very, um, a, a lot of work, and I have to thank the relatives, really. We couldn't answer all the inquiries. Somebody called in, is my, is my grandfather okay, or whatever, and then I said, and I called them all, and I, we decided together that once a week, I'll take half a day to call them all up and give them a report on how everybody is, and they played along, and that was a great relief for us, um, time-wise, um, because it was a lot of work that we had to do at the time to uh, involve the relatives. And then uh, things went on, and um, we got through the pandemics quite well. Uh, of course, we're all exhausted at the time, and of course people died. People died who had not even been tested positive, and you have to wonder, uh, they died alone. They couldn't see their relatives if they died during these times they couldn't see them and uh, I think that was nearly three weeks that was about three weeks when we had that quarantine did you have any um, chance of ensuring that people didn't have to suffer too much from uh, this Well, we had this point that we could allow the relatives in if people were dying, but uh, in our place, people don't die and announce it before, and that's a normal procedure. People simply uh, sleep off, and it was again and again the question, the relatives are not coming, are they okay? Are they dead? That's what the the questions that we had to answer from the residents, and um, if they had to stay alone all the day, they just watched TV, and what you saw on TV at the time wasn't very, very helpful for your health, and. Um, so, if you have a certain age and. Uh, for the people, it was very, very difficult. For the residents, that is. That's a tightrope walk then to get this across, because on the one hand, you have to follow the instructions by the government or the Robert Koch Institute, manifesting uh, this supposed risk there. On the other hand, you have to try to um, reduce residents' fear. Did you find a good um, way, a good path there? Yes, I think we could balance this quite nicely. Um, there was many people who were dying and uh, carried on living, so we were okay in that. If I had been a resident in your institution, I would have said, I'm going to die now. Well, you don't have to announce that to me. Um, we can see that, and we, we saw people were approaching death. We found a solution. And the good thing, and of course you didn't know before, but you knew that nobody came in. Neither, not uh, the health authorities, and nobody. They didn't come in. 
and were on site so they stayed in their offices they just called us with good advice for example we could of course have staff who's infected but uh, have a positive test at least um, they could work of course if we were to create a ward with infected residents only that would have meant without staff we would have had to swap all the rooms and completely clean the room and uh, then the person would have gone to a room where they had different pictures on the wall with different people with different relatives um, impossible so you see here that those people who came up with these proposals had not the slightest idea of what was going on in a nursing home and uh, as they just uh, um, people live there with their belongings and we couldn't have we would have had the resources to m m relocate them uh, and, and so above on. all after the next test series you would have had to move again because the uh, PCR results aren't reprodu reproducible of course quite rightly so uh, it was quite strange at the time and uh, we noted that the people in the health uh, authorities got to their limits they were completely overwhelmed and as well there was no sovereignty and uh, that was just uh, working according to the rules that's all they did I got a letter from staff members of um, health offices who um, got sick certs because they couldn't handle what they were supposed to do there. I can well imagine that. I got a call from somebody um, uh, where, where they told me that people from the tax office were relocated to the health authority offices and uh, they told us, what did she say, we should by no means cook hot for the people because the aerosols when we heat the food goes into the food and then I just thought what about cold food it's cooked we're cooking it and was by the so someone from the financial we office confronted with things the tax office. Uh, well uh, people I had a um, staff member who was in quarantine for four weeks and I contacted her after two and a half weeks and said, well, what's going on? Uh, people uh, die here and why, why, uh, why do you have an issue so much? Uh, uh, I didn't understand the logic that she came up with. <clears throat> and so she had uh, coughing. She was uh, a caretaker with green, yellow, uh, excretions and that was bacterial and that's clearly the issue of differential diagnostics so um, old people were tested they were positive and then they were alone and let alone and usually they were just let in their homes nobody attended them nobody examined them see if there's any bacterial or influenza or whatever influenza died out at the time and then they wore masks and there were beautiful mushrooms growing on the inside of the mask yeah that's the next thing and well i worked along practically on the bedside so to say and uh, 
Well, I, at the time, had to work wearing a mask. We didn't know whether we were going to be controlled or checked up or whatever. And I can really tell you, it is a tough job. Um, we had people having headaches, uh, heartbeats, high blood pressure. It was really something. And I wonder where the um, occupational health offices were. It was obvious that they couldn't keep their break times and the working conditions were suboptimal. Now, how did things develop after the vaccinations? Well, we had one. We wanted to review this, and um, I just said, just at least uh, look at it in a sober way. Let's do antibody studies, for example. Um, we said we heard it was completely new virus, and we had three residents over 80 years old, some of them, and. They had no symptoms at all. Uh, so they are positively tested and no symptoms. And some only had very slight symptoms and some, of course, who were in bed for a fortnight. Uh, and of course, they had chronic bronchitis uh, in the beginning. And for these, it was more of an issue. But in all the others, there was one twice a moment where I saw the thought, well, we'd have to keep an eye on them. And uh, then, with uh, the consent of everybody involved, we started to do an antibody study with, because I wanted to know whether the people who didn't have any symptoms with a certain age, with that all new virus, how they dealt with it whether they ha whether it was a wrong positive test because that was in the media as well that there was false positives and uh, we tested and we saw they all had antibodies after the infection and the spike antibodies which according to my knowledge um is only those who the, the vaccinated uh, didn't have the quick antibodies, but only the spike antibodies. And it was interesting to see the development. What I can tell you from all this data collection, which we did, it was consistent that nothing matches up. And in our home, we had vaccinated people who never had an infection before. We have unvaccinated people who did have an infection and didn't want to get vaccinated. And we had unvaccinated who joined later, who never had it. And we had the fourth case uh, reconvalidated people who did get the jab because their relatives asked them to and what interesting to see what happened in the vaccinated group that didn't have an infection after half a year um, so we were one of the last homes that did uh, vaccinate and it was about 11 who got 
the jobs. And 28 were healthy again. They recovered. And I have to say the worst of were those, I don't know, maybe you can confirm this, um, the ones who had the infection and then got jabbed. That was chaos. And if they got another infection, they turboed the, they rocketed the spikes. It was not measurable. I think the measurement stop, stops at 11,000. And I had not a single case. I didn't have anybody with a natural infection who had so high anti-spike antibodies, not of the normally vaccinated people who didn't uh, take the infection beforehand. Of course, you have a different antibody reaction if you have a local um, infection because these respiratory diseases normally develop in the upper respiratory tract and if it goes uh, lower, it's usually a sub-infection with bacteria that make people ill. But if you inject this, the incentive to build the antibody is all over the body, so we have a different reaction. And if you have renewed contact, the immune system is uh, irritated by this uh, proteins occurring all over the body that it needed to defend against. So you get the risk of an ADI, of a severe reaction with those where the immune system was irritated because it is an unnatural pathway uh, to get into contact with the viruses if they're suddenly in, um, uh, all over the body. <coughs> yes, that was an interesting story anyway, and um, there was no continuous line. Um, it was quite sh obvious that they didn't want us to measure the antibodies after the vaccination because there's ranges from 100 to 11,000. There's no picture. Did you note down the batches of the people who were injected? Uh, did you register the batches? Well, I didn't want any doctors in the care home. And I asked one doctor to uh, do this together with me. And it was completely voluntarily and we tried to inform the people as objectively as possible. There were some where the relatives pressurized their, their relatives, their, re their residents, and the doctor did a good job. It was all the same batches. We um, jabbed them all at once. It was a single batch. And what I had thought uh, I'm a layman as well, I mean, and <clears throat> I looked into the topic, but uh, I'm not a doctor. And the thing is, when I had five parts that I can take out, and I imagine that I've got nanoparticles, and in the nanoparticles I've got the RNA, I think it's a closed system, it's not visible to the eye, and it's dissolved, but the nanoparticles don't dissolve, do they? No, they're injected. 
Yeah, but so then how do you want to clarify how much of the nanoparticles go into a single jar? Well, yeah, that's a problem um, that's been found now that it's very in, um, inhomogeneous that every jab doesn't contain the same uh, amount and that is also uh, depends on the batch you get because the production process uh, varies so much. There are batches where you have a lot of uh, lipid nano uh, particles. Uh, there are other uh, batches where you don't have any R mRNA in the uh, particles, then others have only fractions, and others' uh, DNA has been found inside of those particles. So these are severe impurities, and it's very inhomogeneous. And so it really depends on what batch you got. But if they all got the same, then that can't be the cause. <coughs> Well, that's why I think uh, you can't dose it properly. This uh, a vial which goes to four or five jabs, you can't share it properly. So it's not like insulin where I know I have 16 units or 12, I know what I get to the body. And I think that this is, it can't be dosed. And uh, that's the only explanation that I have. And uh, we have had bleedings in the skin, bruises. We had one strange case of a cancer um, in an 80-year-old who died within three months, uh, vulva carcinom, where she didn't have anything before. And she was here for a long time, and she died within three months. So, from my experience, I don't know, is we've got lots of shingles um, on the body, in the face, um, affecting the eyes. I've been in the profession for 28 years, and this frequency of shingles, I've never met this. We've had this every 10 years that somebody had this not in the amount that we're having it now, also in other people that I know, people that got the jabs. I noticed this a lot of times. And then, shortly after, we've got the uh, news on TV that people got shingle, and we've got the um, advertisements everywhere in the uh, on the internet. Uh, probably Pfizer produces the drug that they try to sell there. It's perfect organization. I really have to say it's so well scripted that uh, there's no other way to explain it. It has to be a mastermind with a PR agency really going through all the details. Uh, you can't do it out of the hat. Perfect. Well, they do more business with new diseases now that you can offer a medication for. Well, Pfizer is going to cancer drugs now, uh, MNR. Yeah, they're all very expensive drugs that you take there. It's big business. Yeah, just look at the figures. If you think that... Uh, we're in contact with, uh, with by, um, that in care homes, and we've had that 900 people die in care homes every year, every day in Germany. Only the ones in the care homes. 
not counting the cases that die at home. And if you compare the figures with the reported deaths with or due to corona, it is not dangerous at all. You see that immediately. And uh, I wrote an article on that which was published in the local newspaper. Um, and uh, they printed it even, where I said, we'll have to see, um, take the realistic figures. And in, if 2,600 people die every day, 900 of them in care homes, we don't have excess mortality. We didn't at the time. And a great big care home um, may have 10 deaths. Um, I don't want to know what's going on in other care homes who may have the same problem that we had, where the staff was sent to quarantine. Who took care of the people? Yeah, a lot of terrible stories were reported there. Well, it's always asked how many corona deaths did you have, how many infected did you have, that's all they asked. Not a single question on how did you manage or what was the big problems and challenges that you had to face during the time, none of that. In the countries that keep closer statistics about these cases, such as in the UK, there's the uh, correlation that in April there was a, a very high peak of excess mortality among old people. And there's an observation that this is the exact time that benzodiazepines were used to a much larger uh, extent than usually. And that matches your statement that your patient, your diabetic patient who was uh, taken to hospital was immediately ventilated. That's what they did. And um, to do that, they had to be given this jab. And you know that this jab uh, suppresses the um, respiratory center and if you uh, overdose on this and then um, uh, ventilate them and the anesthetic and uh, the anesthetic uh, uh, physicians uh, said it at the time they cried murder uh, you can't do that you're killing people if you uh, ventilate someone who's over 80 and needs to be sedated first well, actually, here it's not standard to do that with over 80 years old. Um, the chance to do good is so low and the chance to do harm is so high. That's a known fact. That's nothing new, really. Um, these are things that uh, are standard and, and general knowledge. If you work in the field, uh, it's, it's standard. You have to know this. Well, and then it carried on. We did our regular testing and then we had no outbreak for a year and we have to say the jab wave started end of 2020, early 2021 and everybody could have seen that it's not going to work because we had many care homes um, who boasted that they had 90% uh, or even 99% vaccination rate. Even the staff was vaccinated and they still had the outbreaks and not a few. So it was clear at that point in time 
that it is neither going to protect you against an infection nor that will protect you against a severe course. And drugs only have a certain range of efficacy. So if you are sick, I can give you something. If the time has come, the time has come. And the immune system can't deal with the disease. That's the end. And it is about dying in dignity. And if we take drugs to extend life, and we may have drugs that support recovery or a status of health which uh, can remain stable, but there's no healing ongoing. Um, if somebody has a heart problem, we can maybe stabilize the disease in the heart, but we can't recover the heart. And if the time has come for people to go, there's nothing that protects you against death. That's my experience. I can only speak for myself here. It's these situations where people are in a lot of pain where you can help them. It's the situations where you can stop people from asphyxiating in a um, torturous way. You can help them there. That's palliative. That's palliative. We are very good in that. We have uh, had a lot of that. Uh, where, well, but where were these people who do that? Uh, so we have the knee the, in the news that an, a 98-year-old person died of corona. Well, sorry. And until today, we are not able to differentiate uh, what they died of. And what do the doctors do? I mean, sorry, that's embarrassing. That's a poor effort, effort in the best Germany of all times. It was simply not wanted. Yeah, That's what we yeah, have to yeah. state quite clearly here. And from the care homes, one could have learned much, much earlier that the shots do not help. We saw that early on, and uh, even the doctors shut up. Nobody said anything. And um, we didn't get our recipes without the jabs. Uh, the doctors uh, had to jab everybody. They couldn't give us the standard recipes that we needed for the It is residents. insanity. It's really shocking when you hear what you went through there and what kind of up and down it was, how much stress, unnecessary stress it caused. Um, all of this, um, these things that happened around COVID, um, if people hadn't been panicked like that, um, residents watching TV and getting all these horror stories and then um, relatives who um, um, are in fear and then your staff are quarantined for no reason and the rest have to kill themselves working. If this had been uh, approached with a lot more um, relaxation, then you would have um, been spared a lot of stress. Well, from a certain point in time on, it was very clear the doctors could have known that it is not what it was said to be. And uh, in the media and the government, very simple people got that. Um, they got the shots and uh, got corona and severe courses.
and and then um, do the packs of it. We talked about that. Uh, it's really Pfizer who uh, sold that. So the sh the vaccination helps so well, not against infections, but severe causes. That in addition, you have to um, administer Paxovit against the severe course. And that, that's so absurd as, a, as an argument, and that is consistent. Uh, if I go to a restaurant, I have to wear the mask, and at the table, I don't. I mean, um, small people would never have to have a, a mask. It's absurd. It's absurd, isn't it? Yes, that's it. Uh, if, I, if I'm in the ta at the table, in a room, I don't spread the virus when seated, what? So, in uh, 21, we didn't have anything. We were safe all along, and I think that has to do with the fact that we that we had immunity in our care home and then 22 in April I think April May we had another outbreak and that was Omicron everybody got it all of them everybody who got the jabs everybody had it and we could observe again quite interestingly that the vulnerable group who was uh, who had survived corona in 2020 i think that was delta at the time they didn't have anything they had no symptoms high ct values no symptoms at all they were in the social rooms and the ones who had recovered and vaccinated didn't have symptoms, but a low CT value, 19 to 20. And then we had the ones who hadn't recovered, neither or who hadn't recovered but were vaccinated. They got severe symptoms, even dying, some of them. And in Omicron, we had those who'd never had it before and who weren't vaccinated and they got uh, sick and had to go, had to stay in bed. But that was after the jabbing campaign. I'd like to ask you, it might be, it might be a mean question because it's um, speculative and I, it may be a bit suggestive, but uh, your um, clientele was the group of people that they uh, made this program for, uh, the vulnerable. Quite right. Uh, if you have a pandemic which is uh, difficult and dangerous for everyone, you don't start the injections uh, with people who are in a situation that are rather much on the other side rather than concentrating on the young people. If that had really been the case, uh, uh, and they didn't do anything else in the media, it is lethal. That's what they said in the media. But the question hasn't been raised, to be honest. What I was getting at really was, what's your view? It might be mean because it's speculative. If nothing had been done at all, if we simply had let the whole thing run its course, no panic, would anything have changed? in terms of uh, the death rate, infection rate? Well, from my experience, 
I can say, and I can look back at 2020, Delta is different than Omicron. Uh, the vaccinated say they'd had Omicron, and they're so happy that they've been vaccinated and they uh, take the certainty wherever from that they have been through it, although they had a severe uh, course, and it was young people, my elderly people, uh, two-thirds of them survived Delta quite well without any precautions. Uh, they did have it. And all the measures were designed so that you don't get it in the first place? Well, the measures didn't take effect. Uh, they weren't effective. Look at the care homes. They all were vaccinated. They did test. If the vaccination helps, why do I have to wear a mask? And why do I have to test? 90% or 100% of the people are vaccinated and protected against death, severe courses. What sense does it make to wear a mask and do all the testing? Well, um, did you did you experience um, that people who got the jabs and who were negative before and then positive after the jab, did you ha see this? Well, don't forget one thing. I didn't um, see that because I had a clear concept. A PCR test was run on everybody before we um, administered the jab because I wanted to know whether they're uh, positive because there was a lot of um, reasoning, argumentation that, well, they got COVID after the vaccination and they got infected before that. And I simply wanted to preempt that from the get-go. And I agreed on that with the doctor and he uh, agreed on it. So we looked before we vaccinated anyone, whether they were infected already, whether you can trust the uh, test or not, but the, the official narrative believes in it, so fine. But in most um, homes that was made, and we know, uh, uh, we don't know about uh, vaccinations for flu, for instance, during a flu season, that's not the standard. We don't see that normally happening. And so there were many who were positive afterwards, and they always argued, well, they probably infected, uh, got infected before they got the vaccination, and it takes two weeks before it's, it takes an effect. Yes, and you could compensate that by testing prior to the jab. Well, we didn't have an outbreak for a whole year. We didn't. But you did have positive tests no. after the shots, no. did you? Okay. Basically, only two years on. But I know from colleagues of mine, hardly a month went by where I heard it from a home that had been vaccinated, uh, where uh, COVID cases were reported. And that is when the staff should have realized, well, I got vaccinated, the vaccine is effective against infection, as they claimed, it uh, is effective against passing it on and against severe cases. But the doctors and the nursing uh, care st uh, staff and the uh, operators of the nursing homes saw that it didn't happen that way. 
And so I found it so absurd. In the clinics, the same thing. They had positive staff members. Uh, that's well known. Uh, some clinics actually were reported on in the uh, media. And nobody asked, like, how come this happens if that is the case? Maybe the whole thing, oh, people had a way too brainy approach there. Maybe it would have been easier to confront people with the facts. You don't need a doctor to understand this. You uh, get a, vac a vaccination, uh, you have to get tested, you have to wear a mask. What benefit is the vaccine? I uh, can get infected, but I can sit in a restaurant. It's interesting to see that people who are not intellectually trained, who kind of work with their hands, taxi drivers or uh, craftsmen, that have lots of contact with people, that they were much quicker to come up with a suspicion that something is wrong. And that uh, all the intellectual people, the teachers and all these smart people, the doctors, the legally, the legal people, um, well, I have an anecdote here. I have um, uh, that um, from friends of mine. I was uh, in my car and somebody called me up and said, it's about the mask. I, I can't work with the mask. It limits me and it's no good. Uh, well, we can see um, that people get infected. And he tells me, well, you don't drive uh, your car without the safety belt. And I said, well, but the safety belt doesn't give me any health problems personally. And then I wonder, like, how come he comes with this weird, this uh, stupid uh, reasoning? And then I uh, read the uh, physician's uh, journal. And uh, for many physicians, that's the Bible. And what it says there, they simply take it at face uh, value. And maybe they were stressed themselves. They went along because they simply relied on what the uh, president of the uh, Physicians Association said and what's written in this uh, physician's journal. But that this journal has to be financed as well, one way or the other, and that there are certainly sponsors in the background. Well, I said, uh, is this um, physician's uh, journal, is that actually advertising or, well, is it paid for via advertising? Yeah, well, certainly to an extent. But people are a bit naive there oftentimes. Well, I, I really saw a lack of logical thinking among academics. Well, you could have asked whether the seatbelt helps against viruses. Maybe that does. Maybe car accidents. <laughs> well, how come she comes up with this uh, comparison? And somebody from a, a, a journal uh, published that, a physician's journal, and then um, she took it on board. And that's where people get their information from. And that the physicians were largely online, well, we could see that, yeah. Quite right. Maybe I can just um, come back to a crucial point, which I think uh, 
and it was said from the beginning, uh, if we hadn't tested, we wouldn't have noted anything, and your home is the test to the example. And um, I'm not talking about the jab, everything that happened before, despite the so-called uh, protective measures, uh, people were infected, especially with Delta, and still they didn't die in great numbers. So nothing would have happened. When really. the flu season, we always had 48 people who died. That was quite normal. If you extrapolate this, if you have a, a nursing home with 100 residents in the flu season, you extrapolate that, you have 20 deaths. That is not unusual. But what we always have in the case of severe uh, flu waves, like 1718, when it, uh, during the outbreak we have a higher death rate, but then the next year we have a um, lower mortality rate. Yeah, you can only die once. Those are people who would have um, certainly died anyway, based on our experience. Um, well, definitely with us. And if you think about who was classified as uh, passing with or of COVID, so people who were, had terminal cancer, no flu symptoms, and still, we're talking of a flu here. Okay, the point is quite clear, at least, I think. Hadn't we done anything, nothing else would have happened in the care homes, nursing homes, and if hadn't changed there, it wouldn't have in the rest of society. That's what I wanted to point I, out. I um, am really annoyed by the fact that when um, The corona critics, the, 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 those who criticize the uh, anti-COVID measures, when they say it was right to protect the vulnerable, uh, vulnerable people, no, it wasn't. Indicate the uh, nursing home that protected its residents with the measures. They weren't protected, they were tortured. Yes, and people are body, uh, spirit and soul. And if the bodies left alone, locking people away, uh, depriving them of personal contacts, that alone makes people ill. We can see it if um, relatives go on holidays for a month. We notice that, that people regress, that residents are severely affected by sadness and that they deteriorate physically and mentally and we have this uh, period uh, for people with dementia uh, this mirror the the contact uh, the facial contact so that you can um, influence people that you can steer them that wasn't possible anymore so what that shows us is that the collateral damage of the measures should have been looked at right from the beginning and this should have been uh, factored into the calculation and if we see that uh, the dignity and the happiness of the people and the satisfaction of life and health um, that has been trodden on really
I'm very happy that you have shared all this with us because it gave us a good um, image of what happened in your care home and I would really like to thank you for taking all the action that you took because I think with many people that were that didn't get the jab you were able to prevent harm and you created an awareness that people can decide and they can see um, uh, say I feel more safe here or there and I can take the jab or not and they had the alternatives and there was no pressure and as if I got you right for the staff as well and um, that is important maybe I was informed wrong but I had the opportunity to decide without pressure and uh, you provided the information and I think that is uh, great and very good well after the Omicron variant the um, measures were uh, um, <coughs> ended so we never uh, wear uh, masks anymore in coordination with the relatives and I uh, got a vaccine uh, a signature from the relatives um, uh, to uh, indicating who's vaccinated who isn't um, that was the most important uh, thing this division the trying to divide people uh, the staff like when you think that somebody uh, is works in a clinic has been working for 34 years there and uh, the clinic is very happy with uh, the staff and uh, then uh, they're told that they had to um, be tested under the four uh, eye principle because they hadn't been vaccinated then this is just abuse and um, that people were uh, sent home um, weren't allowed to go in without uh, pay um, or else you 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 call in you say oh I'm uh, you call in sick and then you're paid so and that wasn't an order by the health office there were institutions really and the church institutions didn't earn any laurels there either and really not and there was a uh, sea change there so simple-minded stupid staff are um, more popular than um, old-school staff who um, open their gob and can fall back on experience we have more and more people in nursing who um, get uh, training nursing training and then they move on to management immediately and they have no experience in the past we had to do seven years of work as uh, in nursing carers before we could move on to management and i think that's a good idea so uh, we have ever more people moving away uh, from nursing care we have a huge problem i think 20 percent left um, the uh, um, this job um, because of this vaccination uh, mandate that they simply allowed to expire rather than saying okay we double checked and it's no good so we um, lift it so I mean uh, even though it was lifted at the end of December uh, expired at the end of December some staff members were forced to get a vaccination in December maybe I briefly ask a question you talk about um, lack of resilience in the junior staff um, 
where I am located, there's lots of migrants working in care homes. I don't know if they are cheaper. I don't know if they're paid to tariff. No, no, they're all paid according to the same pay schedule. Um, so we're obliged to pay according to the pay schedule and uh, there's no distinction there anymore. Um, but I have uh, very few uh, migrants. I used to have an Indian uh, staff member who, um, well, I mean, had the greatest experience with her. She wanted to do that herself. Um, she learned the language. Uh, she came over uh, for an intern, went back home to India, learned German, then she came back here. Um, she was a, a nurse. She came from an um, SOS a children's village, and that's where she grew up. And she has a good and a great view of people. And we have very different um, people, and I know from my colleagues who have many uh, foreign staff members due to uh, no, tell me, what am I looking for? Uh, due to the uh, shortage of nursing staff. And they are confronted with uh, strange things. F uh, people come along with a pay slip and they say that is not normal uh, for us. So we're not interesting uh, for foreign staff members, um, for, for people from other countries. First of all, many of uh, those who uh, flee uh, for economic reasons uh, to Germany. Um, they want to support uh, their families. And if you see how much uh, you pay in uh, taxes, we have pretty much the highest tax rates in uh, Europe together with uh, Belgium. If you look at uh, the cost of living, the taxes, etc., they can't save up money anymore. They can't send money home anymore. I think that's a topic that we have to discuss another time. But then you do have a problem with foreigners that um, we have 80% women and there are many uh, male foreigners in uh, old age care, nursing care, and nursing care for the elderly uh, is among the most intimate things that you can imagine. Uh, so where um, Complete strangers have to deal in a very intimate way with each other, and you need a lot of sensitivity for that. And people have very diverse views of um, their fellow people. There are people um, in the world or uh, cultures where old people are a value and uh, people are a value and as such. And then there are cultures where that is not the case, where even women, for instance, aren't um, valuable in themselves. It starts, and I had a Croatian staff member, they wouldn't accept any female superior. He had a massive problem there. So there are many other um, aspects that come into play here. Cultural things. and. Um, I didn't want to open a large topic here. Uh, I just want to say my experience is that I, I have lots of contact with people from 
uh, migration, and uh, many of them are very critical to Corona. Uh, they didn't get the jabs and so on, but they didn't. They weren't seen in resistance movement, and so this is my question: was if there were any differences? I can't answer that question. Can't say. I know from the homes in the vicinity that uh, people wouldn't have been hired. <clears throat> they wouldn't have uh, gotten payment for their um, training. So they haven't forgotten the pressure. It was enormous pressure. I keep forgetting um, the name of our health minister. What's his name now? What was it? Mr. Lotterbach. That's him, yes. That's his name. Okay. I, I can't really forget about this name. I'll need it tomorrow, uh, again tomorrow. How he uh, got up and said the unvaccinated made no contribution uh, to society. Uh, well, for more than uh, nine months, we um, kept nursing people uh, without any protection. Well, what would be interesting, uh, I have a colleague from Bavaria, from the lower part of Bavaria. He has a program for staff members, and half the staff are vaccinated, the other are not. And he told me that he has been monitoring it for two years now, also in terms of uh, sick certs, and he has 20% more sick uh, days among the vaccinated than among the unvaccinated. That, that falls in, into place with the um, numbers that the insurance, health insurance companies provide. Some have published some figures. That's something that we may have to address as a topic. Yeah, well, yeah. we should look into that as well, okay. yes. Great um, to hear what you have to tell us. was very important, and I think we got a good insight into what <coughs> happened um, in your home there. And thank you very much for being so committed to both the staff, to, to your um, people, your residents, and for telling us today, uh, keep up the good work, we'll keep in contact, um, Let who knows what comes down the line of, of bird flu or whatever. <laughs> don't, don't say that, if, you, if that comes again, I'll quit. Uh, um, that's getting worse and worse, and uh, I'm out. Um, you surely have this in Berlin as well that you get uh, things. Complex topics, yes. Well, well, thank you very much. Um, keep a stiff upper lip. And um, thank you very much. It was great to have you. And um, it was emotional for me as well to report this here. I hadn't expected that uh, it kind of uh, <clears throat> well, move me back well, into the time. Well, it's obvious that you're very committed. Um, that's great. Thank you. I thank you for allowing me to be here. Have a good time. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Same to you. Right, that takes us to the end of a long session. Yeah, it was long. We learned a lot. Yes, very long. You can uh, look at it. We have this. Uh, Corona-Ausschutz.org is the archive, and we're uh, putting up ever more links there. It'll be very important for um, 
dealing with the whole thing in retrospect. Um, now, in order to keep up this work, we rely on your support, and I hope that you will continue supporting us so that we can continue collecting this information and processing it so that people can get information here and we will uh, stay away from a uh, pay barrier because people need to be able to find out about the important findings of our experts and witnesses without having to pay for it. So I'd say that's all for today. So we'll ask, uh, we'll wish everybody a nice Thursday evening in this case and hopefully in um, longer um, weekend and a nice Easter period while we will uh, hear you again on um, Friday, on Good Friday. And if you would like to use this day to get information, you're welcome. Okay, see you then. Goodbye.